Oh, just one thing. Just um, in introducing you, how do you feel about certain big house? Do you go by that or? No, no. Forget the serbs. Forget the serbs. No, we don't bother with all that. Okay. Is it is it been de- is it is the currency being degraded since Gavin Williamson's? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't have to answer that. What you want are youngsters applying the knowledge and becoming more effective as learners, not simply people who are accumulating knowledge. We want people who can use knowledge and apply it, not simply build it up. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello Earthlings, it's good to be back. I feel I should begin with apologies to our regular listeners for the brief hiatus in the usual fortnightly service. Last week I did a TED talk, TEDx I should say, which has rather eclipsed everything else in my life for the last six weeks or so. It's amazing how disruptive one little 15 minute talk can be. I'm fairly used to doing public speaking these days. I can happily address a room of several hundred head teachers without breaking a sweat. I even teach public speaking to teachers and students. But as I've discovered in the last few weeks, it turns out that this is quite a poor preparation for speaking to the general public. The week before the TEDx, I practiced it at a spoken word night to around 20 people in a room above a pub, and I found this to be a uniquely terrifying experience, but nowhere near as terrifying as doing the actual TEDx itself. It turns out that standing on a little red carpet and having a few thousand strangers staring at you while you try to look spontaneous does funny things to your nervous system. In my case, it seems to trigger an amygdala response that makes my mouth incredibly dry. I was thinking, thanks a lot, amygdala. I can't speak now, you idiot. It's literally the only thing I have to do. And so I have a question for all you biologists out there. What on earth is the evolutionary advantage of having a flight or fight response that makes you incredibly thirsty and incapable of speech when you're about to be eaten by a lion? Answers on a postcard, please. Anyway, thankfully, I made a last-minute decision to take a bottle of water on stage with me, which spared my blushes, and it seemed to go okay, it got laughs in all the right places, and I'm very pleased that I did it. My talk was called Implementation Science for the People, and it's about how and why we need to change the way in which we're governed. I've had some lovely feedback on it so far, but I'm really looking forward to hearing what you all think of it once the video is out there. Apparently it takes a couple of months to go through Big Ted, as they call it, and find its way onto YouTube. Rest assured, I may mention it once or twice when it does. Anyway, on with today's episode, and what a zinger of an episode it is, featuring, as it does, my recent conversation with Mick Waters and Tim Brighouse, Sir Tim Brighouse no less, about their sensational new book about our schools. Mick and Tim are titans of the education world, and I suspect you'll have heard of them already. But in case you haven't, here's the About the Authors bit from their book. Mick Waters and Tim Brighouse share a wealth of experience of the school system. Both have worked in schools and universities, both have been chief education officers for large local education authorities, and both have worked close to central government in key school improvement and curriculum roles. 
During their careers, they have both been asked to work at policy level with national governments and have always worked in and around schools. They're often found still in classrooms with pupils. In the course of their work and through invitation, they have visited thousands of schools. They remain in demand as conference speakers, and to my delight, that includes the Rethinking Education Conference later this year, on which more in a moment, to share their experiences and offer advice to groups of schools and organisations. Above all, they both count themselves lucky to have met so many people along the way who have shown them what to do and what not to do, as well as the precious ones who have encouraged them to think and think again about what might work better. I cannot recommend this new book of theirs about our schools more highly. At 600 plus pages, it's a bit of a whopper, but it really is all killer and no filler. And I'm not alone in thinking this, here are a couple of the nice things that people have said about their book. John Hattie, who himself needs no introduction, said, You can hear the passion, the decency, the anger, the compassion and the hope in this insider-outsider story about England's education policy over the last 45 years. And he goes on to describe it as the most exciting and exacting book that he has read in a long time. And Mary Myatt, the education writer on curriculum and other things, wrote, It seems odd to refer to a book about education as a page-turner, but about our schools really is just that. Hardly surprising, though, as it's been written by two of the greatest storytellers in the field, whose careers at the heart of the action mean that they know everyone and have a view on pretty much everything. They survey the past and critique current initiatives always through the lens of the teacher and the child in the classroom. It's full of anecdotes, balanced critiques and a surprisingly compassionate appraisal of politicians. About Our Schools is a masterpiece and I shall be returning to it again and again. Close quote. I'd also like to share one very short excerpt from the book with you and these aren't Mick and Tim's words but they do sum up the book and their educational philosophy beautifully. The words belong to Pablo Casals, the Catalan cellist and conductor, who wrote in Joys and Sorrows, Sometimes I look around me with a feeling of complete dismay. In the confusion that afflicts the world today, I see disrespect for the very values of life. Beauty is all around us, but how many are blind to it? They look at the wonder of this earth and seem to see nothing. Each second we live is a new and unique moment of the universe, a moment that will never be again. And what do we teach our children? We teach them that two plus two makes four and that Paris is the capital of France. When will we also teach them what they are? We should say to each of them, do you know what you are? You are a marvel, you are unique. In the entire world, there is no other child exactly like you. You may become a Shakespeare, a Michelangelo, a Beethoven. You have the capacity for anything. And when you grow up, can you then harm another who is, like you, a marvel? You must cherish one another. You must work. We must all work to make the world worthy of its children. Close quote. It's quite something that, isn't it? It's something that I think about often, not just in relation to education, but with regard to life generally. We find ourselves at the heart of this most staggeringly beautiful, heartbreaking mystery of existence, and we spend so much of our time focusing on mundane things and arguing with one another. 
Life could be so much more than we make it if only we can figure out how to collectively raise our gaze and see the world and life itself and education for what they really are. And in writing this book, Mick and Tim have provided us with an incredibly powerful critique, but also a workable, detailed plan for how we might get there. Before we get into it, a quick word about the upcoming Rethinking Education conference, if I may. As regular listeners will be aware, alongside this podcast, a global community of educators and young people and parents and carers has come together. And now 550 plus collection of people from all over the world who all seem to agree that we're not getting this right currently and that we can do much better. The Rethinking Education Conference is really an extension of this podcast and the community to bring people together in real life so that we can see one another and listen to one another and learn from one another. One thing that I've become quite concerned about in recent years, and it was part of the rationale for this podcast, is that the education debate has become very narrow in my view and a small number of people seem to dominate the narrative and they have a particular agenda. And there are many people who have a valid perspective on education, notably young people and parents and carers whose voices are often sidelined and ignored and I don't think that that's okay. And so this conference is an attempt to bring together five different groups of people, mainstream educators, alternative educators, parents and carers, young people, and then there's a fifth miscellaneous group of people like me, essentially, <laughs> like education reformers, consultants, union types, researchers, psychologists, and whatnot. There are 500 tickets available, 100 for each of these demographic groups. And we also want to make sure that these five different demographic groups are equally represented in terms of what happens on the platforms. I can't guarantee that that will happen because it partly depends on who applies to come, but that's what we're working towards. And so I'm really excited about this conference as a way to bring people together. The conference is going to be called Let's Get Together so that we can see one another and break out of our echo chambers and expand our reality tunnels, if you like, to include the views of other people so that we can form a more accurate, rich picture of what's going on here before we start coming up with any ideas for how to make things better. If you're not in the UK, then that's not a problem. You can participate both as a speaker and as a delegate remotely. And so I strongly encourage you to do so wherever you are on the planet. There's no excuse. So please do have a look at the link in the show notes to the details of the conference. Speaker applications are open for a few more weeks. The early bird ticket offer is also only open for a few more weeks. And on top of that early bird offer, there's also a 20% discount for friends of the podcast if you enter R-E-P-O-D 20, REPOD 20, that's all lowercase, into the promo code when you go to the ticket page. And when you get to the ticket page, you need to look out for the promo code in small blue letters at the top of the page because it's not that obvious and some people seem to miss it. So... Please do come along if you can. It's Saturday the 17th of September at the beautiful Addie and Stanhope School in central London. It's going to be a wonderful thing indeed. Let's get together. Okay, without further ado, I will now hand over to my recent conversation with Mick Waters and Tim Brighouse. I hope you enjoy the show. Mick Waters and Tim Brighouse, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thank you. 
good to be here. It's great to speak with you. I've been really looking forward to this one. So, so obviously we're going to be, well, maybe not obvious to everybody who's listening, but we're going to be talking about your recent, uh, what I've been describing as something of a magnum opus about our schools. Um, and the subtitle is building on, is it building on previous best? No, no, it's improving on previous best, James. I beg your pardon improving on previous best and so let's just start with an open question what prompted you to write this book at this point in time well well james we were uh, we were talking with each other about the source of a, a piece of writing and thought well it would be good to just examine what secretaries of state have uh, thought of the work they've done over a period of time so we had the idea of getting in touch with as many secretaries of state as we could and interviewing them and putting that together to make a book. And uh, this was all about a year, and a, a year and a half ago. So January 2020, we set about interviewing secretaries of state. We got 14 of the 16 who are still alive. And uh, it, it rather went from there. It, it snowballed because as we were talking to them, they said you ought to talk to. So we did. And we ended up talking to about 110 people uh, ranging from secretaries of state to ministers, their civil servants, their SPADs, their special advisors, people such as uh, chief HMI, uh, leaders of Ofsted, and then all sorts of other people who are concerned with education and uh, schooling, including uh, head teachers, leaders of multi-academy trusts and leaders of authorities. And uh, we ended up with this picture of education over the last 45 years, perhaps in a moment Tim will explain, which uh, helped us to describe where we've been and where we've travelled and where perhaps we need to go next. And it, it's part history, it's part interviews. We read loads of biographies and other reference material and we put in some of our stories because we both travelled that, that period of 45 years and uh, it was just a good reflection and a way forward. And we hope it'll uh, make a little difference to the education system as people think about some of the things that we've discussed. Yeah, and it's worth it's worth kind of saying we started with Callaghan's Ruskin speech of 1976 because we think that's a sort of punctuation mark where there'd been an age after the war which was one of optimism and trust. If you remember, ignorance was one of the five, I think they were called evils, that, that um, perhaps it wasn't evil, but the beverage, five enemies of, of, of a just and fair society. And ignorance was one and education was one. And we had the Butler 1944 Act. And uh, it was in my, my lifetime. I, I'd been born four years before that. So the whole of my career up to Callaghan's speech was in this period of optimism and trust. And it might have been a bit misplaced. But it was a distinctive period where the Secretary of State had three powers only. I would like to emphasise that early on, because we're going to move to a period when that seems unbelievable. I mean, the Secretary of State could approve the removal of air raid shelters, secure a sufficient supply of suitably qualified teachers, which is an important task. And in our book, we start with the key factor of the teacher making the difference. You know, that Gino quote of, you know, I make the weather, I create the climate, I can humour or humiliate. And 
That's why teachers are so incredibly important. And the third power that the Secretary of State had was the opening and closing of schools and, and the rationing of the capital programme. And then along came Callaghan. It was the 1970s. There was an oil crisis. Two or three schools had done rather badly, bit, echoing a bit like some of the stories you read in Schools Week or you used to read in the TES when it was a, when it was the news reporters. Uh, and th there were there were there been a couple of notorious school failures. One was called the William Tyndale School in London and the other was um, Rising Hill Comprehensive. Uh, and uh, and Leela Berg wrote a book about that called Death of a Comprehensive. And I remember it quite distinctly. And Wilson had got furious with the universities because of student unrest in the night in 1968. And, and so we were in the middle of an oil crisis. Callaghan had read what would now not be called, but were called them black papers, which were, were polemics from the right saying, Johnny, Tommy isn't learning today. And, and there'd been the Newsome report on secondary schools, half our future saying half the kids weren't succeeding. And so people were questioning whether what we've been doing since the war, when everybody thought education was a good thing, um, was enough. And we chose that date because we think a new age emerged with Baker's 1988 Act and what happened in the 80s and moved on then to one of markets, centralisation and managerialism. And I'll explain that in a bit, James. And so just in case any any listeners aren't familiar with this speech at Ruskin College, uh, Jim Callaghan gave in, in 76. Can you just give a brief sort of description? Why was that such a pivotal moment? What what was he talking about in that in that speech? There was something about a, sec he... a secret garden, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the ministers, a conservative minister, had 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 the view that the curriculum was a matter for the teachers and it was referred to as the secret garden of the curriculum and Callaghan was arguing well it shouldn't be such a secret garden our school's really doing have we got over much trust shouldn't we be a bit clearer and a bit more specific about what schools should do is it time for ushering in a kind of acceleration of our determination that all kids should succeed through the schooling system so that's what he did. And then we get into the second period, um, which is dominated by markets. So you, you, you believe in parental choice. You create a national curriculum, which is what Kenneth Baker did. You have tests and exams, which are published in league table form. You have an inspection system and you revise inspectors who used to go around when it was before Ofsted saying what 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 are, just tell us what you're trying to do in the school and we'll judge you by what you say you're trying to do so it was a much gentler age and that the, the suggestion was that we needed much more competition because out of that more kids would succeed but the, there'd be a sense of urgency well we all, what we then do is through interviewing all these people, we've been honestly trying to find out what's worked and lots has worked. For instance, school improvement um, has become, we know much, much more about that than we did in that earlier age. We probably know a lot more about teaching and learning than we did then. I mean, there've been developments that, that have changed our approach. 
So there are lots of things that have worked, but lots of things that haven't worked. And so what we're saying is, and I think this is terribly important, are we now at a repeat age where there is a punctuation mark, where possibly we've got an oil crisis on our hands, uh, we've just emerged from COVID. Is this a period of a similar doubt and disillusion? And our argument is, yes, it is. And no wonder if Newsom did a report called Half Our Future. Well, they, many people now talk about the forgotten third of kids who don't actually achieve much through their schooling, for which for whom the schooling experience well, hasn't been a huge success. And if that is the case, are we content with simply having moved from half not gaining much to a third not gaining much? Well, it's progress, but it's not it's not what all of us came into the profession to do. We wanted success for all kids. It might be in a different different forms for different kids, but we want them all to grow up successful adults. So what we do is we argue that it's time for a third age, one of hope, ambition and collaborative partnerships. And we've got reason to hope that the collaborative partnerships are beginning to emerge in groups of schools working together, whether in local authorities or in multi-academy trusts. Schools are beginning to learn much more from each other and be less isolated and competitive. So we think we should seize some changes. And we end the book, as you know, James, with a set of proposals and recommendations. And in between, well, there's all sorts of some major chapters on political uh, issues and then some other chapters on analysing the tricky problems like SEND, like emissions, attendance, exclusions, finance, governance, getting a sufficient supply of suitably qualified teachers and then keeping them. Absolutely crucial. We're not keeping them as we should. And that's the general picture of the book. And we're very hopeful out of the interest that's already been provoked by the book that there is reason to be hopeful now that we are in an equivalent period to where we started our book and a third age will begin to emerge. It took probably 10 years for it to be clear after the Callaghan speech where we were going. And maybe it'll take a two or three or four years until the cumulative effect of the many people who are unhappy with the present state of affairs come together and persuade a whole nation to say, come on, let's get serious about reducing that third who don't get much to a tiny fraction. Or even to zero. <laughs> like, like we, we, like we, we should well, be... Love it to be Zero. You yeah. know, I mean, it's a fascinating question. I know we, we spoke about this yesterday because a third, you know, you're right. It may be going in the right direction from a half to a third, but a third of a big number is a really big number. And there are tens of thousands of young people who leave school every year feeling like failures. You know, even even some of them who got quite good results. But if they didn't get the results that they that they were hoping for, I've seen kids who like, come out with like eight A's and a B who feel like, like they've lost everything, you know. Um, and so, so I just want to pause for a moment and just sort of frame frame this discussion because this is a, a grand sweep of 
of history that we're that we're covering here. Um, and I know that lots of the book is is about what's happening now, and we and most of this conversation will be about what's happening now. But I, what I've loved about the book is that it it provides all of this sort of background information that much of which I wasn't particularly. Um, up to speed on and so i mean it's a staggering achievement first of all it's like to to interview all of those secretaries of state and you you said this started a year and a half ago somebody who recently wrote a book like and you were reading you know interviewing hundreds of people i imagine that that was an intensive period of time that you've just been through it was um sort of all day every day for several months we we began in january and uh each day we we would talk to two or three people of course then you had to get transcripts done uh, then you needed to look up things they'd written in their autobiographies or that had been written about them. Then we had to research elements of the conversation that had appeared as we'd gone on. Uh, it, it was fascinating to put the book together and to uh, go through the process of writing a book with a with a colleague, but never actually meeting. And the idea that we wrote the whole book talking to all these people, but we didn't actually sit in the same room as any of them is really quite interesting as a, as a concept, but uh, it was good to do. And, and it was a very odd period. It was during the lockdown and we would not have got all the people to speak to us that we did if we'd been trying to arrange meetings or yeah. three of us being in the same place at the same time and taking it on. Yeah. I, I, can I come in, James, and say, you know, it was a fascinating thing to do, uh, but Mick is a marathon runner and I'm a sprinter. So I I I would write uh, I would write sprints and Mick would turn them into marathons and I have to say the book is a credit to Mick rather than me because he it was who tran who arranged the transcription of all the interviews and he stitched together the fascinating bit of the book which I hope you and Mick will now pick up which is extensive interviews with all those secretaries of state with their spads with you know people like michael wilshaw who let drop the most amazing view that uh, we have to rely on data and inspections because you can't really rely on the inspectors <laughs> to to the wrong conclusion <laughs> and i have to say that quite a few schools that have been offsteaded would entirely agree with him uh, but they were fascinating conversations and of course we cleared everything with them before we put it in the book. So they can't now say they didn't say it or they didn't mean it. Um, and uh, I don't think they would. They've all been extremely generous. But Mick, Mick really put together the guts. It's just letting people know that it's me they've got to blame. Uh, <laughs> um, the, I have to say, we... we after, after we'd done the transcripts and then sorted out the bits we needed to put in various chapters, we we cleared it with each individual to make sure that they were content with what we were writing, that they hadn't misspoken, as it were. And uh, the politicians rarely changed anything. They may have changed a little bit of grammar, but the people who did change things were people in the school system, head teachers, or particularly people who were leading uh, multi-academy trusts who on occasions said please change this or please leave this bit out because if that became uh, sort of public that I thought that it might have repercussions for my school or my trust or my authority and 
That is a worrying sign. I mean, we were pleased to do it and we were fine with doing it because we said we would. But the idea that there is a worry that somebody such as the inspection regime or there's a political uncertainty lingering behind the force of debate is a little bit worrying. Um, when, when teachers are more worried about the politics than the politicians are, that, that tells you something, doesn't it, about the accountability um, system that we're living under, that people feel like, you know, yeah, that they're, they're vulnerable, that when you when you step out of line, that people get sanctioned, don't they? Like, things don't go well for people who, who, are, who are outspoken. Um, there's been lots of examples of that in recent years. Well, or not necessarily sanctions, but you, you may or may not be in the area of favour that you need to be. And that's one of the repercussions of increased centralisation. Increased centralisation takes decision making into a, a, a smaller group of people. But it also means that that smaller group of people relies on a smaller group of people than previously in order to move um, move practice. And so some people are more in and some people feel less in. Uh, than previously. That's why we, we call for collaborative partnerships as a way forward. We think that's better than uh, people being in, in certain scenarios where they make a difference or not, depending on who you are and what you said recently. Yes, yeah. And I can see that it makes good sense to talk about this third age of collaboration as a sort of as a counterpoint to this very market-driven competition-based second age that we've, that we've been living through and, and are still living through. Um, and so is the, like, just, to, just to finish, I, I definitely do want to come on and speak to you about the chapters two and three about the bits where you interview the secretaries of state because it absolutely, I found it mind-blowing. Um, and full disclosure at the outset, for the, I know that I mentioned this yesterday, but for the benefit of listeners, because this is a weighty tome, it's like 700 pages or something. And I got to the weekend, I've been listening to it mainly, <clears throat> and I got to the weekend and realised that I was interviewing you in two or three days. And so I've, I got to about chapter seven or eight, and then I fast forwarded to the final chapter on on recommendations for the future, because that's the bit that most aligns with you know the, the theme of the podcast around rethinking education. And so there are loads of really interesting things in the book that I've, that I've glanced at, but w which we won't have the chance to, to cover today. And that includes things around admissions and exclusions, SEND, as you just mentioned, and disadvantage, issues around accountability and governance and so on. So much important stuff to talk about there, but we're going to maybe, maybe we'll get you back for round two when I've read the second part, half of the book. But um, I, we'll, we'll set that stuff aside for today. So just as a final question before we get into the secretaries of state bit, can you sort of you, you, you mentioned earlier, Tim, that, that, the, that the secretary of state had three powers. Was this in 45? Yeah. 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 OK. And, and, now, now, and now, James, they've got about well over a thousand. Well over a thousand, over two thousand. I mean, they've got individual contracts with standalone academies and mats, so they can say what and force them to do whatever they like within the contract. They've got enormous power, and the 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 power has grown. One of the people, you'll forgive me for bringing in a light tone, uh, but one of one of the people who has had a profound influence and has just left is Nick Gibb, because he was there for 10 years. Uh, and when we talk about secretaries of state, you'll begin to realize just how extraordinary that was. Yeah. And I have to say that he is in favor, I think, of even more centralization than we've had. I mean, he, he's quoted in a newspaper as saying that um, uh, through an, uh, an expat teacher now working in Australia, he said, perhaps that's his normal form of evidence, but he says uh, that, 
teachers teachers prefer it if politicians decide what is taught and how it should be taught. Now, I don't think that's really true. Indeed, I don't because I came across this teacher, this story of this teacher who, who was kept going up to sanctuary buildings in the DfE about a fortnight ago when Gibbon left and kept and went in and said, I want to talk to Mr. Gibb. And the guy on the door said, look, look, I'm terribly sorry, but he, 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 he no longer works here. So the teacher went away and the next day, the same teacher went back and spoke to the person in the foyer and said, look, I want to talk to Mr. Gibb. So he said, look, I've, I've told you yesterday. I mean, he doesn't work here anymore. So off goes the teacher and the next day, the same teacher comes back, goes into, I do promise you, I won't make this last <laughs> the whole of your podcast, but he goes back into the foyer speaks to the guard and the guard loses his, his cool and he said look i told you yesterday i told you the day before why do you keep coming in here and asking if mr gibb is still working here he said because i like to hear your answer <laughs> indeed indeed and, and so I, I was aware of that and, and i'm familiar with the with the teacher the expat teacher that you that you recognize that you that you mentioned and the quote was something like he said something like i want to be able to vote out my politicians i don't want i don't want education policy to be to be made by some unelected um you know um group of you know professors and consultants and what have you um i want to be there to be democratic accountability but that seems to me to to be a real oversimplification because like how there may be some people who vote for a political party based on their education policy but i don't think that it's many that like, the democratic accountability for who gets to be the, the, the a schools minister for 10 years or more and essentially then be given a carte blanche um, to do what they want and to, to give themselves more and more powers. And I remember when Gove came into power, in, a, in, a, in a, a, an example of, of Gove, you know, talking the talk but not walking the walk, which we'll, we'll look at another example later on. Um, he said, oh, I, I came into power to, to give power away. Like, that's what I'm all about. I'm all about devo devolution and giving power to people to make decisions at the most local level possible. And then he proceeded to give himself an additional 50 powers um, within weeks of, of making that statement. Um, and so these two things seem to have gone hand in hand. What do you, how do you, see, I mean, do you see that this has, there's been a relationship between the, these ideas of, of marketization and competition and league tables and, and, and it's like neoliberal sort of policy agenda, if you like, and increasing centralization. Do you see those two things as being linked? And if so, how? I'll put that to Tim. Yeah, okay. Well, very quickly, uh, to kick it off, I think it's because markets lead to failure. And in the end, if, you, if you're responsible, you have to deal with that failure. So you start to centralize and you start to do that thing which happens in schools where you start to say to yourself if only everybody would do x then all would be well so you're trying to cure the failure and then you 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 start to prescribe what everybody should do and it's a bit like a school or a multi-academy trust that goes too strong in well they call them non-negotiables but i think language is so important i'd call it singing from the same song sheet you have to judge if you overdo that, then you stifle the intellectual curiosity and the creativity within the system. And I think that uh, 
it, it's it's unfortunately the consequence of such a large country. We've got 47 million people and we've got one government and we haven't got devolution. So Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland always feel better if you're working there because you, you know the people involved because it's a smaller community. We are the most centralised and centrally directed schooling system in the Western developed world. Indeed, more centralised and authoritarian in a way and directive than some of the authoritarian states. Um, I'm not even sure about Russia, um, which is a topical thing to mention. I think they've got more devolved power uh, within their regions to do things than than we have. Uh, that's uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not advocating. A, I'm not trying to get political here. I'm trying to say subsidiarity, that word of making sure that decisions are taken at the right level is incredibly important. And we've gone from leaving everything, the secret garden of the curriculum, to it now being a public thoroughfare which is centrally directed by the traffic, by the traffic wardens who are really the people in the DFE. So I, I think that's very unfortunate. And we do make proposals as to how you might crack that. I think um, just going back to your point, James, there's only one, only been one general election in my memory where education has been one of the top agendas, one of the top uh, talking points of the election itself and, and a thing around which people may have voted. Mostly education gets mentioned in the manifesto, but it's not part of the debate leading up to an election. So consequently, when we've elected the governing party, the, the minister comes into place based on all sorts of uh, decisions. But there have been times when the, minister, the, the secretary of state coming in, David Blunkett was assumed to be the education secretary before elected. Michael Gove, when in 2010 the Tories came into office with the coalition, uh, they, they sort of were assumed that it was assumed that they were going to be the secretaries of state, but there was no guarantee of it. But they brought their agenda in and got going very quickly based on a political mandate from the prime minister of the time. Michael Gove talked about giving power away and talked a good game in terms of beginning the, the move towards multi-academy trusts and told head teachers that they would have autonomy and they would be, be able to release themselves from the burden of the national curriculum that he was developing. And yet, here we are 10 years later with schools, many academies telling us they get less autonomy than they ever, believe, than they ever would have believed they would get and less than they had when they were with their local authority. Yeah. And near, nearly every academy does the national uh, curriculum, which was the top thing Gove said they could escape from. So it's in some cases, it, in some ways, it's a sleight of hand. You talk one game and play another. And, and politicians have centralised the agenda to such an extent now that they only really engage with a very small proportion of the whole population concerned with teaching. So it's a very clever thing that's happened. I think it, I actually think, as Tim was saying, it's by accident in a sense. They set off with markets and didn't really, really understand that the failure would mean that the questions about failure were directed at them and therefore they would have to do things. And the more they did, the more centralised it's got to the extent we forgot why we're centralised now. We just are. <laughs> and we carry on being centralised.
Yes, and it, and it's important to recognise that it that it wasn't always this way, and that actually it could go in another direction. We could devolve lots of these powers, and 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 the the democratic accountability question that we just raised is not intractable, is it? And, and we'll come on to that later on because one of your foundation stones seems to me to be something that's democratically accountable, and yet it would be uncoupled from the the short term sort of interest of the electoral cycle education would be less of a political football to use that that well-worn that well-worn metaphor um and so we, we, we'll, we'll get onto all of that but so okay so let's get into these um th- this bit about where you interviewed all of these secretaries of state i found this part of the book to just be absolutely gripping because you sort of you, you don't often see like secretaries of state um, in a way that is unpolished, right? You don't see them sort of talking about the the realities of the day to day life. You see them on you see them on the news. You see them on a stage at a conference. You see them with a, something that a speechwriter has helped them prepare. And so they have this there's this veneer, and you never really get a sense that you know. But it was just like lifting the lid on 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 um, you know what it's really like to be a human being in a short period of time. The average incumbent is two years in that post in, in this country at least. Um, and so I've got loads of questions that I'd like to put to you about this this chapter. But I first of all, just want to ask for your reflections. And Mick, as, as it sounds like you led on this, just what was what were the key sort of the key um, insights that you drew from from this from this series of interviews? Well, I think first of all, these people were incredibly generous and very open with us about their thoughts. So just to say that, but I mean, the insight was that it, the only four that really made a difference were Baker, uh, Blunkett, Balls and Gove. And and they made the difference because of the experience they'd had elsewhere in other departments of government or because they had noticed that they were going to do the job and probably be given time to do it. So if you think about that, Baker was in charge for three and a bit years, uh, Gove and Blunkett for four years and a bit each, and, and Balls was in charge for probably two, three. They, they they were head and shoulders above the others in terms of what they could get done in the time that they were there. Most of the others uh, don't know they're going to do the job. They have no qualifications for it. They find themselves as Secretary of State with very little notice. They they get Some of them get the notice as they enter the Prime Minister's office. I mean, one told us that he was expecting to be uh, given a job such as Northern Ireland secretary, then realised he was being invited to the office uh, rather early in the day, so it probably end up being something like health or social care. And when he got in the room and was told it was education, he was absolutely dumbfounded but elated. Now, what you find is that from there, from that sort of not even a standing start, a sort of uh, you know wondering where I'm going start. They then have to walk out and talk education policy within seconds. And it's not just schooling, it's universities, prison education, libraries, things like that as well. So these people have a virtually undoable job. And then the four we mentioned made, that I mentioned made quite significant differences. And each group that followed each of them was either building on what they had achieved and trying to take it forward. Estelle Morris would be a case. She'd been very close to the work of David Blunkett as schools minister. So when she became secretary of state, she could take it forward. But for many of the others, they're picking up uh, an agenda that's been set by somebody else. And in many cases, an agenda that started to go wrong. 
So Nicky Morgan talked to us about having to take over from Michael Gove, who had basically come to the end of the end of the road with his policies and his behaviours and his way of working with people. And Damien Hines and uh, Justin Greening and people that were several steps down that road were still dealing with some of the, the, the turbulence that Michael Gove had caught in the system, so couldn't bring forward anything that they really wanted to pursue. Um, so, so it's a complex world, this job of the Secretary of State, and therefore they rely on people such as their special advisors, their spads. But what we also noticed was that from 2011, 20, uh, so, sorry, from the 2000s onwards, the rise of the influence of Downing Street, the number 10 unit, the delivery unit, however you want it expressed, becomes much more significant. And the, the sort of overarching politics of power became very, very significant. So first of all, we had Michael Barber and his team in the Deliverology unit, the Prime Minister's unit during the Labour years. And then since the coalition and through into the Tory years, the need to control the message has often meant that the Education Secretary is, is following the party line generally in order to move the school system forward. And we should say that, lastly, that two really significant influences on Secretary of State have been Andrew Adonis in the Labour years, and we think mainly for the good, and Nick Gibb in the Conservative years, 10 years during um, the period since uh, the Tories and the Liberal Democrats came to power in 2010, with a little hiatus where he disappeared for a couple of years. But he's done 10 years, and Andrew Adonis did a significant time. We think Nick Gibb's overall influence is less good than uh, it should have been. And uh, so their influence as schools minister was very, very significant in the on the secretaries of state that they're with. Coming in on the back of that, James, the only thing I'd add to that, which was a, a, a kind of very accurate description of what I perceived as well. And after each interview, Mick and I would compare notes uh, about the interview we'd had. And by the way, if somebody was a bit too certain, that was the thing we were doubtful about. And I've got to say that the secretaries of state on the whole passed that test very well. They 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 were they were open minded and thoughtful and, and revealed all the things that you have identified and mixed mix elaborated about them being so open. But there are a couple who I think I'd add a gloss to. Mixed describing, apart from the four, the, the, the notion that, well, you've got at most 24 hours notice of the job, actually less than that, at most 12 hours notice of the job. Uh, and, and you have no idea other than you've been a pupil uh, and you've come in and taken on this job for which there's no job description. And, and, and you, you've got to get on with it, as Mick said. There were two people who had a better experience of schooling uh, than that. One, of course, is Estelle Morris, who everybody likes a lot. We do too. Uh, but the other was Gillian Shepherd in the Conservative years. And she had been not merely a teacher. She'd also been an advisor in Norfolk. She'd been an assistant education officer. And eventually she turned into a politician, became chair of the Education Committee. And that showed, and in a quiet way, Gillian Shepherd was a remarkable witness. Um, 
and as Mick would agree, she followed up with loads of notes to us. And and one of the things that I that I I still kind of puzzle about, and I can't see it happening that frequently, is she she told us that she was Secretary of State, of course, just as New Labour were coming in in ninety seven, and she described meetings she had with David Blunkett. Uh, and with Blair and with John Major, the outgoing prime minister, in the months before the election, so they could discuss things uh, that she was trying to push. She was trying to push a little bit of uh, literacy and numeracy, and she started the NPQs for headship. So she was trying to get better leadership. She was conscious of school improvement. She was married herself to a secondary school head teacher, and she had all that background. So that even though she was trapped as being the last education secretary of a very long period of, what was it, 17 years or 18 years of, of Tory rule, and she knew it was coming to an end, she was extremely thoughtful uh, and had the advantage of that background. And I think that that background helped. Yeah, I think that, that all of that's correct, Tim. And um, one other thing that occurred to us was that uh, many of the earlier secretaries of state that we talked to were relatively critical about the DfE and the view that the DfE was a bit of a burden on educational progress. And the more we got centralised and driven by markets, the more managerial the whole thing became as... Uh, as a number 10 waded in to uh, push things forward. So some of our secretaries of state were sort of uh, wondering where they went with the DfE itself. The, the more recent secretaries of state, I think, saw their role as trying to harmonise the DfE and help them to make the difference to the education system that we really need to make. But of course, in doing that, you get more centralised. We did rather admire the work that Justin Greening was doing she was one of the ones who we thought understood some of the terminology she was using. One of the features of the whole thing, we thought, was that there are certain words that get easily said, but relatively less understood. So such as um, equity, equality, social mobility, even levelling up mean different things to different people. But if you're a politician, once you've said them, you're on message and you're going in the right direction. But Justin Greening to us seemed to really understand issues of social mobility and she'd, she'd got a real commitment to making a difference to that. Indeed, since she left politics, she's invested herself in a social mobility agenda. So many of the Secretary of State really want to make a difference and really do invest themselves in the job, but they're, they're burdened by what uh, Charles Clark called the too difficult box. He, he's written a book called the too difficult box, which we studied, uh, where he says there are some things which you you just know you're not going to sort out by the time you're out of office. So they they simply go in a box and, uh, and and they stay there until you leave. And it's not long until you do leave. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was 
absolutely you know that people come into this into this um post with with you know with good with good intentions and good ambitions but it just felt like it i just felt so exasperated reading that reading that chapter as to as to how much waste there was you you, you were just mentioning um jillian shepherd there as, as one of the people who who was experienced and it, it makes it all the more remarkable there's a quote from her where it says that it, it's education i knew a fair amount already and therefore, if I wanted to test out ideas or gauge opinion, I would talk to people I had known for a long time in the field, like chief education officers, university vice chancellors, and so on. At the time, I worked well also with some of the unions. And then she said, it was only after my time at the DfE that I really found out what the Institute of Education could have offered. Which, as somebody who works at the Institute of Education, my colleagues and I, I shared that on our WhatsApp group, and they were like, "We need to put that on our website." Like, it's, that's ridiculous. But even as somebody who was in the, who's been in the profession, could have overlooked something like, the, you know, the, the Institute of Education. There's a, there's a clue in the name there, isn't there? That there's going to be some expertise there that's not very far away from, from um, what are they called the buildings, the DfE buildings. Sanctuary buildings. Sanctuary buildings. Um, but th sorry, did you want to come in there, Tim? Before before I go on to some quotes from these secretaries. No, no, it's fine. Just take us on. No, it's fine. I, I think don't forget that Gillian Shepherd became the. Uh, I think it was called the Chancellor of the Institute of Education, uh, and and she she really understood uh, what the institute could do, and quite quite honestly. I don't think any secretaries of state uh, deployed the expertise in the Institute of Education to the extent that they could. They could have had an informal group of experts in education that they refer to. And I do think in education, we lose a lot by not having nice and more recently sage, which um, in the health uh, profession, gives a kind of independent, regular view on what is or isn't the case. When I was with my GP recently and we were talking about centralisation, I asked him, uh, look, do you do you get ministers telling you how to cure a cold uh, or whatever? And, and he said, no, no, they don't do that. They do tell us how to run our GP practices sometimes. I said, well, that goes with the territory. Um, but... They don't get quite the same interference. And right at the end of this conversation, I know we're going to come on to, well, how can we crack that a little bit in the future? Yes. Yeah. And so so it's interesting, isn't it? I was trying to sort of to look at this from both sides and thinking like from somebody like Gibbs perspective, for example, um, and I'd be interested to come to, to. So you said that you weren't sure, you weren't so convinced of Gibbs, and, and Gibbs was one of the one of the few people who who didn't um, didn't give you an interview, did he? He was he was uh, the minister at the time, um, and so. But I'm, I'm interested to hear about what you see as, as his legacy, and um, and so so I, th I imagine that that placing myself in his shoes, that he would like like what what some people refer to as political interference or political meddling. He's just like, it's just like leadership. It's like it's taking control of a situation. And for example, like he, he would probably like draw an example like phonics, say, where there's like, where, where there's, there's, there's evidence that, that teaching decoding in a specific way leads to beneficial outcomes. We shouldn't leave that up to the whims of, of the, the, the preferences of teachers because that the, the the rights of the kids could trumps the rights of the teachers. That's something that a, 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 a previous a recent podcast guest put to me, um, and that he would have seen it as being much more about just sort of like taking a strong lead from the centre, 
where that's needed to be had. And so I think that you would probably, you know, I, I think that some people at least would, would argue strongly for, for more centralization because it allows you to to have more say over what happens. And, and and there's a lot at stake here. You know, I think, like you say, everybody understands that we're talking about life chances of young people, the future of the economy, the future of the jobs market. Like the stakes are high in getting education right. And, and so you can see why people would want to want to increase their control. So so firstly, I'll, I'll ask the question, like, what do you see as the, the problem with that? What's the counter argument to that taking control? Um, piece that I just put and then the second bit is about Gibbs uh, legacy as you see it well in, in terms of it's for example is phonics a good thing assuming we say think it is which I do uh, the the health equivalent of it is nice where you look for clinical excellence and there are procedures and practices medicines that are approved and used by the doctors uh, according to their expertise and knowing the patient and knowing what to do. And there are, you know, they can be held to account if they don't use the appropriate system. So there's nothing wrong with having centralised, agreed processes and procedures. The issue is who decides and how do we decide? And in the case of the phonics, he wasn't incorrect to say that in Clackman and Shear, there'd been a, a piece of research which showed children made progress through a, 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 an approach to phonics. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's Nick Gibbs' job to decide that therefore that should happen. We, we believe that there should be a process of professional uh, questioning and professional approval of various practices and process and the outlawing of some practices and processes, but not on the basis of the ministers now decided. Because, for example, with phonics, phonics we know does work. But it works best with children who have a rich reading experience, who understand that, you know, books can make a difference in their lives, that enjoy books with somebody who cares about books, who see books as having a, a purpose in our lives rather than just something that passes through every day at a certain time. That the things such as uh, the cues you get in learning to read from from rhyme, from shape, from from context are just as important and the phonics is part of a whole approach to reading which ought to be mandated through something that's an ed educational equivalent of nice or sage or whatever so it's not the actual issue that might be in doubt it's actually how it's managed and I've where it is okay thank now, you yeah now nick gibb did decline he was it was the only minister or secretary of state to decline a uh, conversation he said he was too busy and it was during covid time so that's fine. Uh, but the so we pieced together his views from uh, things that he said at various conferences and various meetings. Uh, our worry about the centralization is that the danger of a minister or a secretary of state being the decider is that they take advice from people who are close to them. And the, the danger then is it's people who agree with the minister. So what you're at risk of is a very small group of people making decisions from uh, that have far-reaching effects about everybody else. And, and then you get that thing that Tim was talking about, that certainty. And we were perturbed when we talked to pe people, not just ministers and secretary of state, but many, many people who, who were absolutely certain. There's a difference between certainty and conviction, a difference between commitment and certainty, this certainty about we're right and everybody's wrong, everybody else is wrong. 
And there is a broad scope of opinion in education. You know, at the start of the pandemic, there were the questions about scientists. How could scientists be wrong? And scientists debate things. That's how science moves forward. And education needs to move forward through really good debate. Not not prejudice, not not sort of hearsay, but really good debate based on research and evidence. That's why the university community uh, needs to be fully involved in trying to shape education in the future, but also, in a sense, being more responsible to in terms of trying to influence the understanding of people about education and schooling, so they take it forward. The university community has almost allowed the system to, to go away from it rather than take it, take it forward in the way we would hope they would. Tim, I don't know if you want to add to what I've just said. I don't think so, no. Um, I just underline the point that the problem is peculiarly an English problem because it's 47 million people or 50 million or whatever the population of England is, it's about that territory. And you don't have the same feeling of being powerless in Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland where devolution has happened. And there, we, we point out in the book at one point that there's a world of difference between devolution, decentralization and delegation. Devolution is giving power away. So Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland can go in a different direction from England in the schooling system, and they are going in a different direction. They're all UK citizens, but they're going in different directions. Um, and our point is, I think, that in a population this large with over 22,000 schools, uh, it's very, very difficult to get people feeling there's a sense of of ownership and being involved. And I always remember meeting a woman who ran a small municipality in Sweden who had its own electricity and water supply. And she made the phrase, a sense of powerlessness is the enemy of democracy. And democracy in the sense of standing for really strong values and everybody feeling they've got a say and the freedom of speech and commitment to sort of social justice, even though it never comes about as we would wish, is something that's terribly important to the English and the Welsh and the Scots and the Irish. And I think when Blair sorted out devolution, he should have sorted out devolution in England. I think adding to that, one of the things that uh, became very clear to us over the course of interviewing all the secretaries of state and people close to them was that one of the one of the things that inhibit the English education system is that we have no legislated purposes. We've no consensus about what are the purposes for our schools. And so consequently, any minister or any secretary of state can move in and make the whole system lurch in a different direction, as Michael Gove did when he came in in 2010. And, and if, if there was an agreed set of purposes, around which the schooling system was was organised and uh, managed, we, we think there would be much more coherence and there would be much more feeling of involvement, whereas this feeling of disempowerment that Tim was talking about, that you're not really part of it, it's being done to you, 
is something that's affecting a lot of the profession at the moment because they're not getting the chance to see how this fits to their core purpose and their core beliefs. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and there was, I mean, something that came out really strongly as well, and it's something that I've been thinking a lot about recently, is that you just get bad decision making when, 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 when decision making is so centralised and people tend to surround themselves with yes people. So there was a quote, there was an interesting quote from, um, from Estelle Morris, who said about the tensions created by the demands coming from number 10 to the DFE. She said, I remember feeling confused, torn between listening to good friends whose advice I trusted and listening to the advice of people who were paid to advise. Downing Street risks falling prey to small groups of articulate people at any one time having undue influence. You know how that happens because Downing Street is criticised if they don't consult people, but they're not in a position to consult everyone. So they make the mistake of gathering to them people who think like them. And what they tend to do is to know in which direction they want to travel and then find people who are going to advise them on how to make that journey. They don't find people who challenge their direction of travel. And then she reflected, maybe I did the same. And that's something that um, I've become very, I've, I've been thinking a lot about something called implementation science in recent years. And how do you, how do you implement change effectively in real world contexts? And it's, it's not hard to do. I, I beg your pardon. <laughs> it's, it, what I mean to say is it's not easy to do. It's no picnic. Like it's, it's really hard to do that because the real world reality bites and there are, there are so many problems with it. But one idea that I've taken from the health literature, literature which I've been recently applying in schools, is this idea of a vertical sized team. So you take a cross section through the organisation. So in a school, instead of the senior team making all the decisions and then just announcing to people what needs to be done, you take a cross section and you have senior leaders, middle leaders, early career teachers, teaching assistants, sometimes students, you know, the special needs coordinator. And you look at this policy or whatever it is that you're trying to, to make happen through multiple perspectives. And we've known this for a really long time that, that, that there's been endless like McKinsey reports that, that diverse groups of people make better decisions, partly because there are people in there who are prepared to ask the stupid question. You know, and what people often really mean when they say, can I ask a stupid question? What they really mean is, is it just me or is this a terrible idea? You know, like you sort of, let's just like let's explain this to me like I'm an idiot because I'm, I'm not seeing the picture here. Um, and and that seems to be a problem that there's something that's not just within the, within, you know, at the ministerial level, but it also seems to be something that, that doesn't happen so much within the civil service anymore. This this uh, there's been like, you know, endless um, literature written on this process, the, the importance of deliberation, but that, that seems to be completely lacking at the moment, as I see it. Do you want to come in there, Tim? Yeah, very quickly to say this. Um, I think you've put your finger on two points. One is change and the complexity of introducing change, and there's lots written on it. But the other is... Um, a thought that what will work in one place will necessarily work in another. Yeah. And there's an excellent book which we've, which I tried to get all DFE people to read, uh, by a woman called Nancy Cartwright and Jeremy Hardy, a man called Jeremy Hardy, who are philosophers and economists. And the, the book is called Evidence-Based Policy Making: A Practical Guide. And what's very helpful about that is that it points out that things go wrong. But on two axes, there's the horizontal axes that, you know, what works in one place won't necessarily work in another. Um, so you, you, because you haven't allowed for the contextual differences of two places. And then 
there's the vertical authenticity, which is if you've got the wrong people or you do it in the wrong order or you haven't got enough of this or that, it goes wrong. Yet here we have in a massive system a belief that what's worked in one place can be made to work in another. The most, the most obvious example in my life has been that I worked as an education officer in Birmingham and then Estelle Morris wanted me to do the London job and the London challenge happened and I was lucky enough to be involved in the London challenge. And everybody says, yeah, and London improved amazingly. In our in discussions with politicians years later, and we've, Mick and I have had them, they, the last one we had was typical. It was it was with a leader of a party, a party spokesperson who said, look, what worked in London and why can't we do that all over the country? Uh, and could you write two pages on what were the crucial ingredients? Well, I could work out what the crucial ingredients are, but I'm not going to argue that what worked there would work unaltered in the northeast of England. In the northeast of England, you'd have to allow for different contexts. You might want more of one thing and less of another thing. And I think that central government in such a large system suffers from not realising the subtlety of different contexts. And that's that's where we lead into talking about managerialism, which is uh, which, which was very attractive in the early part of the 2000s, where if if we got spreadsheets and we'd got checklists and we'd got ways of recording things and we'd got systems, we could deliver new processes. But actually, gradually, it's burdened the whole system, not just the bureaucracy, but the processes of moving things forward have become so managerial that they inhibit debate, discussion and the nuanced approach that Tim's on about. So you get the same things delivered everywhere because they have been proved to work somewhere. Yeah, 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 absolutely. We really need to learn this lesson. One thing that I've asked people a lot in, in this, these last three years or so where I've been working in implementation science to hundreds now of teachers and school leaders all over the world. Um, and the, the answer to this question blows my mind. The question is, um, looking back over your career, what proportion of school improvement initiatives would you say actually improved anything? And when you ask that question, it's interesting. First of all, you get lots of nonverbal responses. People sort of roll their eyes at the very mention of the word improvement initiatives. You know, people have got initiative-itis big time in the teaching profession. They make funny facial expressions. And then they often come back with a figure in the region of 10 to 20 percent as the initial as the initial figure. But then if you really push people and say, I'm talking about demonstrable improvements in outcomes for kids for which you have compelling evidence of causation, you know, that it, that you know what it was that led to those outcomes. And those those improved outcomes were sustained across a number of years. So they're the three criteria, demonstrable gains, causation and sustained. How many of them, you know, met those criteria? And most frequently, people revise their figure down to zero or they say, I can, well, they say, I can think to one thing. They point to something like some, some reading program, say, but then they say, like, but on reflection, we don't really have good evidence for it, or it's not really working every year, everywhere yet. So, so like examples of, of effective school improvement that, that that's lasting 
are very very thin on the ground and so i want to put this question to you and 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 see if i can see if i can squeeze a figure out of you if as you look back over this this era that you've been studying over this you know if you however far you want to go back let's say to 45 or 76 wherever you want to start what proportion of government policies education policies would you say demonstrably led to sustained improvements in outcomes for young people God, Mick, Mick is pointing at me because <laughs> he wants more time to think about this, which is a which is a bastard of a question. If you forgive the language, um, I, I, I take it as a compliment. Uh, anyway, my my, uh, my my reaction is well, I wouldn't like to put a figure on it, um, but I, I but I want to add a caveat. And the caveat is this, you, one of the qualifications you had there and was that it lasted over time. I, I'm afraid that things cannot last over time in education uh, because people change, both the individuals uh, and us people, we all change, we all develop, we all go off. Or in my case, I mean, you, you could guess uh, in, in my ninth decade, uh, to, to write a book about improving on your previous best is a bit boastful because I've got to say in your ninth decade, there isn't too much that you're improving on your previous best. You, 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 you're trying to hold on there. So my point really is that it's very difficult to talk about sustaining it. And I think that's dev and that would reduce my percentage enormously. But if you look at some of the uh, shall we say, uh, and I wasn't a fan of it, uh, say the literacy hour, uh, well, it, it did have an impact. Uh, now, it may, have, it may have changed and people may have realised, well, it wasn't actually the literacy hour, it was getting people to think about taking language, oracy, reading, writing really seriously, because we're all going to be judged by that. But then I'd be saying, yeah, so it did have an impact, um, but it may have had an impact at a, at, a, at a cost. And I think what we are saying about school improvement, if you ask me, have you had an impact uh, in Birmingham for 10 years and in London for five? Yeah, I'd say, and I can demonstrate to you exactly in terms of outcomes, how they got better, for instance, using GCSE uh, as, as an outcome. But I'm not fooling myself. It was me and my colleagues and everybody understanding that part of that in a norm referenced exam system was us getting cleverer at playing the game to improve the outcomes for our kids who were fortunate enough to be with a system that was doing that and therefore had better life chances at the expense of others. So I do. I think the challenge for school improvement is we know we know how to make schools not places of bullying, not places where kids are are excluded, uh, though we haven't succeeded with that at all, have we? I mean, if you looked at the data on that and we'll come on to it, the English story is not a good story at all. And 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 so I think it depends what you're aiming at in school improvement. It depends on the people. And it depends on the time that you're going to allow. And I think your three conditions, James, 
means that you're very close to zero because whatever it is you choose only was intended or believed to change the direction for a short period of time before you'd move on. Okay, thank you for that. It was a very eloquent refusal to, to give me a figure, but I, I, I totally hear everything that you're saying. And so you said that it was that third criterion about sustained that, that brings it down considerably. Um, and so if you were to get rid of that criterion, would it, you're saying that it would be much higher as a government level. Yeah, it would. And it would depend on what you were aiming to do. So if it's five or more higher grade or whatever we would say now in terms of the eight and the att attainment date or whatever. Um, and you said that about secondary schools and you looked at Birmingham during the period Mick was there and I was there or you looked at London during the London challenge. You could say, yeah, something happened. Uh, and and I think there was some uh, benefit in terms of teachers feeling energized and wanting to do well uh, by their youngsters. So that would be for me an important thing. If you said, did we have any impact on the third, the forgotten third, the answer would be no, we didn't. Because um, that was not what we were asked to do. And so I, I the opportunity for this book is 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 to say well what do we really want our schooling system to do and then how would we judge whether we were getting towards those outcomes that we've and and we're saying well if you really set that out there'd be lots of things that would need to change yeah thank you okay same question to you mick well yeah i think i think the issue james is that very few policies driven by central government get long enough to really embed because a new minister comes along and has to create a little flurry. Yeah. Even if they're one of those who are following the four big ones that we talked about, they, they all have to bring in a policy of some sort. So Nicky Morgan, realising that Michael Gove had probably gone too far in terms of his, you know, his academic, his history, his, his facts and his, his knowledge agenda, brought in a conversation about character, and which indeed Michael Gove had talked about very shortly after releasing his national curriculum, shouldn't children have more grit, as he called it. So they, they, they have these policies that never really get going, but do make a difference. So schools clutch at that policy for a few minutes if they thought that was a good one. And so often schools, uh, teachers and head teachers and governors, shift the agenda of a policy. In the book, we talk about the way that teachers can often suck a, suck a new policy into their old story. So the, uh, the NOF funding in the early 2000s, when lots of money was sent to given to schools to train teachers to use, uh, for example, interactive whiteboards really well, uh, was money well spent to push a policy, but it wasn't very long before the teachers were sort of using the interactive whiteboards in ways that had never been determined and and that's the problem with centralized systems that they came back some people would argue that Ofsted's been very successful because there are more so-called good schools now than they used to be and indeed Ofsted like that Ofsted need the numbers to go up slightly all the time almost to imply that they're making the difference when actually they're simply supposed to be looking at them and deciding whether they're good enough or not so I, I think this whole thing about what makes a difference one policy on its own 
doesn't make the difference because it's influenced by lots and lots of other policies as you go. And if you're talking about measurable, uh, it would be interesting to note that since 2010, pretty well every indicator of child welfare has gone in the wrong direction, whether it's mental health, children in gangs, children in in, in crisis, children in care, children who are looked after, uh, looking, looked after children, children who are um, carers for others. Well, even children's dental health has got less good since 2010. And, and you know, in, it's just a, a downward spiral in all of those areas. And you could argue that that was due to the end of the Every Child Matters agenda, which was celebrated by Michael Gove as he moved into DfE and removed all the imagery concerned with Every Child Matters. There's no causal link. You can't prove it. But if you're talking about a policy that did make a difference, I would suggest that Every Child Matters did, and, and schools across the country rallied to that because they could see it was an important agenda, but it then got taken out. So it's not necessarily the policy that you can measure. It's it's the impact of the policy among other policies taking it forward. Every Child Matters, by the way, wasn't an education agenda. It came from the Treasury. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and and you 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 you're making so many excellent points. My mind is spinning off in many directions. But something that you both sort of touched upon um, was this idea of like improvement at a cost. You know, and that's something that uh, that again I've been thinking a lot about that we need to be measuring. Um, side effects. I've got. Are you familiar with Yong Zhao's book, uh, "What Works May Hurt," um, which is a brilliant little read. He's coming on the podcast soon, um, and I think that with regard to literacy hour, for example, I'm, I'm not hugely familiar with the data, but I seem to remember reading somewhere that reading scores went up, but reading for enjoyment went down. Um, and so, you know, like according to your narrow metrics, you think like, way we've fixed reading, but actually, if people feel less good about reading, then they're going to read less in the future. And, you know, it's, it's always complicated, isn't it? And we need to make Young Shower's central point is that we need to measure those those side effects as well, just, just as just as. Um, as um, importantly as the main effects that we're trying to achieve and so just to sort of to try to summarize this this section of the of the book and of this conversation i mean there is just this huge sense of exasperation with like that the, these people these secretaries of state with the best will in the world are not um are not able to to operate effectively in that in that very high stakes environment where they're, they're there as we said for an average of two years where people are, you know, like like you said, they're often given no notice. Like Ruth Kelly, was it Ruth Kelly who said that after Blunkett um, had resigned, she was literally just brought in. She'd only just got a new job somewhere else, and she was like, "Oh, oh, wow, I'm going to be doing this now." And she said, "Oh, like they give you a minute to think about it. <laughs> like, oh, okay, I'll have a have a minute to think about whether I want to take on like probably the biggest job of my life um, on no notice." And she said that they're often given a short briefing by the permanent secretary and, and they're away, as you say, with no with no job description. Often with people, there was a quote from Mark Carlyle who said uh, that he had he was really surprised. He said, I had no direct personal knowledge of the state sector, either as a politician, pupil or parent. There's somebody who talked about um, about how things are always nearly she described it as a lunch, a launch and a logo. That was Julia Cleverdon, who was saying that, that, you know, that it's just the latest launch and then it disappears. And it's sort of like the minister's job is to look busy, essentially, to get a headline, look busy, you know, and just but just nothing's really going to change. And like, for example, like Gavin Williamson's 
recent one about you know they were going to ban phones in schools or something it was like it's not even really doable most schools do ban phones it's just a non-thing but it was just like a look busy policy and and there's a sense of exasperation at the sense of the, the sense of waste as well you know like the, you were talking about this some of the stuff that Justine Greening was doing was really good example there was an example that that Ed Balls talked about that was lost in the in the so-called wash-up at the end of the parliament in 2010 when there was a change of government there was uh, sex and relationships education proposals that, that had cross-party appeal they'd worked out all the legislation um and Gove basically just ditched it. Just he, he described it for the narrowest of, of rubbish politics. And then he says you the frustration that you have when conservative ministers start the same conversation again two years later. Um and also the waste of sort of expertise. You know, I remember that there was a bit where Jim Knight was saying that when the pandemic kicked off, he reached out to Gavin Williamson's office and said, I did all this work on home access when I was, you know, the schools minister. I'm happy to share that if you want. But it's sort of, I don't know whether it's sort of territorial, but then he didn't, he, nobody answered that call. And so it just feels like there's just, and, and the lack of, the, the lack of contingency planning, given that they know that they're going to be, only be imposed for two years, the fact that it comes as such a shock to the next incumbent, like that's ridiculous. Like, like for me, it just it just rings out that that we really really need to rethink how we're organising this at the top because it's it's just chaotic and people are talking like Estelle Morris talks about how it, it you know it takes three months to assemble your team of spads and what have you when you get into office and she just felt frustrated at all of the the inertia and the lack of progress and it was just. In combination with of all of those things, the lack of deliberation that we've talked about, um, it just seems really, really abundantly clear to me that that things need to change. And yet, and this is the really interesting question that I want to put to you now before we move on, which is that despite all of that chaos at the top, it seems to that it's widely agreed that schools have gotten better in recent decades, that we're in a better place now than we were in in the 1970s and, and I think that you make that point in the book I know that, uh, Fiona Miller made that point in, an, in a recent article so I'm interested to hear your take on that have schools got better and 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 this is this again comes back to the side effects thing right because you're like well maybe GCSEs have gone up maybe there's more schools the class to be good or outstanding but if you look at these other indicators maybe maybe there are the deleterious side effects here so I'll, I'll put the I'll put the question as simply as I can have schools got better well, I think there's, there's no doubt that schooling overall is better than it was in 1976. And it's better for a lot of reasons. Uh, but the one thing I would say, the evidence for that is that since 1992, Ofsted has been inspected and, and people would say, well, the number of schools in the top categories has risen. Uh, my, my feeling is that in general, schools are better. Overall, they're better. And certainly the worst schools are way better than they were as worse schools in 1970, 1980 or 1990, to be honest. I would also argue that the very best schools are probably not as good as the very best schools were 20 years ago. And they offer less of a, a range of opportunity for children than they did previously because schools have become very wary of accountability measures and the impact of Ofsted and, as Tim said earlier, playing the game and realising what the game is and doing it. And so... I feel there's a regression to the mean in terms of quality of schooling and less, uh, less in schools where they take forward the agenda that suits their community and their, uh, their um, pupils to the, the best 
that they can. So I do think overall schools are way better than they were. The worst schools are certainly better, although there are still some schools that really are uh, sort of an embarrassment to the system. And the better schools, the best schools in England, I think, there are, uh, while there will be shining lights, I think that the very best schools are not quite as good as they used to be. And the, the regression to the mean, when you get a bell curve, the, the, the ends of it typically are very, very small. And I think that we've, we've got too few in that end. I'd want to push the bell curve further forward. I see. So you think that the bell curve has sort of become narrower rather than shifting, and, yeah. and perhaps that, that it's shifted to the, to the right slightly. Um, would you add anything to that, Tim? No, not really. I would just simply say that in the last uh, 40 odd years, we know more and more. I mean, let's not forget that it wasn't until 1978 that Michael Rutter's research suggested that school secondary schools made a difference. And Peter Mortimer did school matters both out of the Institute um, in a, a couple of years later, which which showed that primary schools there were features of primary schools and I, I can remember through my career being fascinated with why are some schools successful and why they're not and I think we know an awful lot more about that and the subtleties of that than was the case at the beginning of the period but it all a question of what you're trying to do in those schools and if you have central direction my feeling is the more you tell people what to do the more you raise the bottom, but it is a, a cost of depressing the creativity at the top. And Mix described that beautifully. Um, maybe what we believe is that if we could agree a set of purposes, create an, a, a kind of, yeah, we're after ambition. We One of our witnesses referred to the poverty of hope of young people. So we've put hope central in what we want for a new age and collaborative partnerships in other words schools don't compete with each other uh they don't tolerate each other but they really collaborate with each other in order to learn and certainly it it, it was through getting schools to learn from each other that that progress has been made that was true of local authorities that made a difference it was true of the london challenge and it's true of some of the very best multi-academy trusts that they, they learn from each other they, they and we think that's the way to go but we must be clear about what the purposes are otherwise we might repeat that we get more people into the sunny uplands but we don't eliminate the very large numbers who still gain nothing from their school experience and that requires a change in what schools for absolutely that thank you that's a perfect place to to uh, draw that part of the conversation to to an end and we'll, we'll move on in a moment to um to chapter four the, about the um the way that schools are organized uh, the decline of local authorities and the rise of mats and uh, how it all ends in tears which i, I congratulated for yesterday t-i-e-r-s listeners um, as one of the most most successful puns uh, in the education literature. So 
we'll move on to chapter four, the uh, which is sort of essentially about the decline of local authorities in the English education system and the rise of multi academy trusts. I know that sort of, although this is quite an Anglo centric uh, conversation, there has been similar things happening elsewhere in the world. And I just want to share a passage with with listeners, if I may, as, as a way to sort of to to because there's a really succinct summary, and you use a brilliant metaphor to describe what's happened um, in the last sort of forty years or so. So it says, in 1976, when our book begins, LEA's local education authorities towered over the schooling landscape, responsible for every aspect of government policy in the local context, including teacher training. Since then, rather like a Jenga tower, the pillar has been dismantled. Secretaries of state, knowingly or inadvertently, have gradually reduced their influence. Various key planks of their function have been removed, building blocks denied and instability brought about by shaking the foundations. What's left of the pillar of local authority influence is a rubble of confusion. There are responsibilities that nobody has yet chosen to remove, possibly because they're unattractive or difficult to define. Other parts of the structure are strong because nobody has attacked them yet. So it's a timely point to have this conversation because there's there's been a a much-touted white paper that's going to come out um, in the in the coming months, which looks like it's going to try to address this rubble of Jenga pieces and to try to make it uniform again. But just to sort of to set the scene, like why has this happened? Do you think why have the, the, these local democratic structures been dismantled so thoroughly throughout the last forty years or so? Uh, we'll start with you, Tim. Yeah, I thought thought you might. Uh, I'm, I'm well. One of our very earliest. Uh, witnesses was um, Kenneth Clark and I, I remember I remember where I was being really surprised and horrified when there was an announcement I'd just left local authorities I'd left Oxfordshire I was working at Keele University but I was giving a talk somewhere and the local the radio the radio four or whatever it was was announcing that Kenneth Clark had decided to get to take from local authorities the colleges of further education and he would set them up as independent bodies run nationally uh, and i i was i was aghast but when talking to kenneth clark he said nobody really objected when i removed the colleges from local authorities he said i do think local authorities have got a role to play but they were playing too strong a role and on the whole they weren't very good at what they do. Some were absolute robbers and bounders, I think it was his phrase, or something like that. And um, he was not alone in that. Uh, the story of from his time onwards is of a set, irrespective of party, is, is a disregard among ministers uh, for the role of local authorities. They thought them incompetent. And that's true in the DFE as well, that they've picked up the notions that you you can't really trust the local authority to do anything. And I was convinced of this when shortly uh, after I was doing the London Challenge and it was, I think, just at the end of the London Challenge. And I'd gone to the House of Lords for some reason to meet the Labour group in the House of Lords to describe why the London Challenge had worked. And there were two um, members of the Lords there, Joseph Farrington, now no longer with us, who, who was a county councillor from 
from Lancashire and another guy from the northeast. They're very distinguished people. And in this group in the House of Lords, I said, well, you've got to accept that nobody has got a good word to say about local authorities. And um, surely not, they said. I just don't accept that. So I turned to Jim Knight and to Beverly Hughes, who were there, who had been in government, in the Labour government before that date. And I said, am I or am I not telling the truth? And they said, sadly, he is telling the truth. Uh, Tony Blair had no time for local government. And frankly, that is only um, I'm not getting at him for saying that. I'm just saying it is a feature of the age that a disregard for local authorities and the importance of local democracy uh, was across all the parties. And therefore, what we witness is a system where they've got no compunction at all in removing things from local authorities. Now, the interesting thing is they haven't yet removed they eventually removed the budget making process. It's now a centrally controlled budget. It used to be I spend all my time arguing with local councillors trying to get more money for the schooling system. And, and that's all changed. So they've centralised virtually everything. They haven't centralised the responsibility for special educational needs and disability, SEND, and it's a mess. And I can understand why they've centralised the money and they're now really alarmed because they've got a system whereby everybody goes to court, to a special tribunal, send budgets, the high needs element of it, which is separate from what goes into the, the mainstream schools, is out of control. Um, we've had witnesses telling us in the last week that they are in an area where there's a 16 million overspend where there's a 54 million overspend, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I don't know what they're going to do about that, um, but they'll be wary about centralising it. They might give it to partnerships of schools because they realise that's where the future goes. And you talked about that in the context of partnerships of schools and it all ending in tears. But they've got not much time for democratic local government as it evolved after the war and was reformed in 1974. And so local authorities now simply admissions to schools, but even there, the academies can cock a snook at what the local authority want, and they do. Uh, there's planning of school places, but they may plan the places, but the schools have got to be free schools or academies, so they've got no role in that. Um, they organise transport uh, to schools if you're a county area, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and other than that, they're into safeguarding and child protection, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you're dealing with problems. You're not into school improvement except for your own schools that have not gone the academy route, but they've cut your budget so you've got nobody left in order to do the school improvement. So they've been, frankly, um, gradually eroded. And I'm, I, I regret that enormously because I found the democratic local voice bloody awkward on occasions. They often used to make me feel I was no better than I ought to be, but it was a very good thing that they did that to me.
that they queried things. At the moment, that sort of voice has been lost to the system. Yeah, how interesting. I mean, I, I, I wonder if, like, I mean, surely all of these ministers, and it's people at the in, in central government, it seems, who have a dim view of local education authorities. And I'm wondering, if is that sort of partly because of, like, that they consider them to be, like, this incompetent middle tier that sort of gets in the way of delivery? Or is it maybe that sometimes they've been, like, in, they feel that they've been intentionally thwarted? If, for example, people are in local, in local um, government who have different politics to, to, the, to the politics of central government, you can understand why central government would be frustrated by that and why they would want to, to try to, to get around that, that obstacle somehow. Is that, is, that a, is that a fair summation? I'm trying to understand why it is that so many people have such a dim view of Valier's in central government. Well, historically, there were examples of where central government and local authorities were at odds with each other, not 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 only about education, but a, a one in education would be the uh, result of the a circular in 65, which mandated uh, comprehensive education would be the norm in the country. And of course, that then went to local authorities, some of whom embraced it and some of whom fought against it and still find a, fight against it and maintain selection. So that's an example of how local authorities can thwart central government. And so gradually, issues like that reinforce the view that if you want to make a decision, you need to do it centrally and mandate it rather than invite. I see. And, and and that's why we still have, I've never even wondered why that is, like why, that's why we still have grammar schools in some parts of the country. Well, because, yeah, some school, and this was in the Tory years of the Macmillan government and into the Labour period when Labour then brought in their policies on comprehensive education, that the, the DfE were then trying to persuade certain local authorities to become non-selective and, and basically being uh, thwarted. And in the book, we do talk about that. We've got quotes from civil servants talking about the tension in that and how ministers would get frustrated that their policies were not being enacted mm. in certain parts of the country. So you, that was just one example. There are plenty of others where you can see that if you were a minister, you would be frustrated by either the, the um, awkwardness, as they were seeing it, of local authorities, or the lack of pace. So the lack of pace was always a, an issue. If you're a minister, knowing that you're a secretary of state, knowing that you're only going to be in office for two and a half years, and you bring out something that will uh, need to spread through the country and people slow it down, you don't even get the credit for it when it's happened. So you, you've almost got to bludgeon it through, which is what Michael Gove did with his, his sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> Is, is dual attack, which was the multi-academy, uh, sorry, the academy agenda, which would be in, in action quickly and was incontestable by local authorities and at the same time led to yet more dismantling of the role of the local authorities because they were losing schools. So that, that in a sense, might have been a calculated attempt to remove authority from local councils uh, but you can see where the logic came from. We just regret the passing of the, the influence of local authority. At the moment, local authorities have responsibility for, responsibility for things that are a mess, uh, that are hurt, uh, painful, and which local people find really frustrating. And local authorities become a buffer between 
people with problems and the government and without the, without the power to sort the things out many, in many cases. Yes. I don't know if you agree with that, Tim, as a summary. I do, I do, yeah, I do. But I, I want to stress that although I regret it, I realise that we are where we are. Oh, yeah. And therefore, amongst our proposals, we're, we're, we're not suggesting that we move back, as it were, to a golden age that never existed in our view. We're suggesting that we, we look at what's worked now, what the realities are, and we try to introduce into those suggestions a democratic local voice and a clearer role for local government uh, than, than exists at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks, and we'll, and we'll come on to that. And of course, the Academies and Free Schools programme was was introduced um, on the basis that it would improve outcomes. And, and that hasn't come to pass, has it? Like, there's no evidence that, that academies perform better on average than, than uh, local authority schools, um, despite you know endless studies having been done. And I, I've talked about that in some detail in my recent episode with, with Warwick Mansell. And so there's a nice little passage in, in, in here, which again, I'll share if I may, uh, for the benefit of listeners, which where you sort of did that, summarising the current picture, as you, as you put it, Tim, and where we are now. It says, after all the turbulence of the past 10 years or so, the schooling system is stirred and very shaken. Academies and free schools make up about 80% of secondary schools and under 40% of primary schools. In the special school sector, there's something about like 41% are academies, 44 are alternative provisions and so on. There are local authorities that have seen all of their schools become academies, some as a result of their prompting, and there are others where most schools have remained under the aegis of the local authority. And then you describe it in quite uh, poetic terms. It says, depending on your viewpoint, it's either a rich and varied landscape, Hockney-esque in colour, or an organisational mess and financial drain. In our view, it is the latter and the government seems to be at a loss about what to do next. And so it seems like, um, you know, we're a little bit further forward in time. It looks like this white paper is probably going to say that we're going to move to a 100% multi-academy trust model that local authorities can, can apply to, tr to become multi-academy trusts, essentially. Um, what do you think of that? Can this, can this be salvaged through that policy of, of like pushing it all in that direction, or is this a case of the sunk cost fallacy do you, as, do you, as you see it? Well, there is, a, there is a cost to going down this route because the cost of maintaining multi-academy trusts is about 40% more than it used to be under local authorities. So the, the overheads, I don't mean the total cost, I mean the overhead cost goes, goes up uh, because you have so many multi-academy trusts and you had fewer uh, local authorities. Uh, I do think that that model will be the model that will be floated as an idea in the white paper. Um, and I hope that at least local authority representatives could be on those multi-academy trusts um, that exist, but are private companies and charities. And they could be if they were on if there were non-voting observers, so that the local democratic voice, because every school serves its local community, would be heard. And from what you're saying, you think that there will be two models of collaborative partnership. One, the multi-academy trust with which we're all familiar, or a local authority run multi-academy trust, which would presumably be similarly a charity 
and a company, but it would be sponsored by the local authority. That remains to be seen. What we do think is necessary, and you've only got to read the pages of Schools Week each week or your last Warwick Mansell, is that we, we need much clearer regulation of the multi-academy trusts because uh, there are all sorts of abuses. And we also think it's the key to unlocking a flawed inspection system and Ofsted. But we'll come on to that a bit later because I, I, I don't know if I've if in what I think is going to happen, Mick also shares that view because I haven't addressed, for example, what are they going to do about free schools? Are they going to let those free schools be dots on the landscape or are they going to push them into multi-academy trusts? Are they going to live with that anomaly? I don't know. In our book, I mean, we, we suggest that we should leave free schools to uh, to become those dots on the landscape that are centres of innovation and really push things forward. But obviously they need links with other people and collaborative partnerships. We also do propose that schools are best organised in groups of between 20 and 30 and allowed to flourish as collaborative partnerships in whatever form. So actually we do mention uh, versions of multi-academy trust being within local authorities or even across two local authorities where where the landscape makes more sense in that way. But that, that point Tim makes about overheads is really interesting. I, I was a head teacher and when I was a head teacher I used to wonder about the local authority and whether it whether it really did its job given the amount of what I saw as resource going towards it and you know all the all the questions that head teachers have. And then I was a chief education officer and uh, heard it the other way where head teachers were saying, you know, is your is your central organisation too big and you think we haven't got enough people to do everything. But actually, when I was chief education officer, the, the top slice, as it was always called, was 2 percent, 2 to 2.5 percent of the budget. If you're in a local, uh, if you're in a multi-academy trust now as a head teacher, the top slice is usually five and often six percent. So the difference in costs for infrastructure is really quite remarkable right across the country. And, and I, if if the similar amount of money was being spent in a local authority, I'm not sure that people would think it's sustainable. So there has got to be a question about how it's regulated and how it's moderated, because some of the multi-academy trusts are sort of um, building their own empire and becoming a, a sort of law unto themselves in the way they're managing themselves, which uh, some of the head teachers do not feel this is collective autonomy and collective decision making. They simply wonder what they really got into in the first place. So there's a whole set of ethics, a whole set of uh, questions about viability, feasibility that I think need to be addressed. And I understand, I, I guess the white paper will say something about making a unified system, probably arguing that we've gone this far towards academies and we ought to go further. They'll say the things about, you know, academies are better, there's more good ones and so on. There is, as you say, little evidence to show that unless you use it partially. But they, they probably will go that way. I think it still will be a bit like when Michael Gove began the academy system in 20 well he didn't begin it he picked up on andrew adonis's academy system in 2010 and in the book we write about how he was very similar to 
the Wallace and Gromit film where where they're putting down the track as, as the train's going along and they're only one piece of the track in front all the time. And, and, and sadly, that's what Michael Gove did. He thought of academies, he, he introduced it. There they were joining something they didn't quite understand. And I don't think it's come out as anybody would have envisaged. And they, they hadn't really thought about multi-academy trust. Now they're thinking multi-academy trusts are better than individual academies. So that lack of clarity, that confusion, its as, as it said in the bit you read out, it's either Hockney-esque in colour and we all appreciate the landscape or we worry about it. We, we think we think a semblance of order is a good thing without it becoming more centralised. The, yeah. the risk is it becomes even more centralised and we argue for local dem democratic influence in multi-academy trusts. Yeah, and on the back of that, I'd be saying the price we will pay will be in raising the game of some of the multi-academy trusts, in making sure that they steer the right course, which is going to be really difficult, between insisting that everybody does something uh, and giving people the freedom to do what they want to do. Because make no mistake about it, a multi-academy trust is the legal entity. So it isn't the individual school within the multi-academy trust. It's the multi-academy trust that's the entity and they're exercising their power strongly. So I'd be wanting to have a huge debate about singing from the same song sheet issues, both at a school level and a multi-academy trust level, because otherwise you lose your very best teachers uh, if you get it wrong. And the other thing to say is we've mixed highlighted by using those percentage figures that there is an extra cost of overheads. One of the most impressive multi-academy trusts boasted that at the secondary level, it had 60 surplus teachers whom they used as experts to go into schools uh, in any department in a school. Now, one of the things that we would get criticised for when we are on local authorities, that if you increase your advisory team too much, you're simply taking the best teachers out of school. And so one of the consequences of the partnerships of schools is there's going to be more expertise taken out of school to work in the multi-academy trusts. And that will make, and I know we'll return to it, the issue of recruiting the sufficient supply of suitably qualified teachers and then retaining them absolutely crucial in the future because we're going to need more of them to do the same thing. Linked to that, as we're just coming to the point where many of the people who are chief executive officers of trusts are reaching a retirement age. And one of the challenges facing the system will be to encourage more people to apply for those jobs. Many of the people who are currently chief executive officers of multi-academy trusts were the people who set them up and agreed the contract with government and dealt with them in the, in the very beginning. And as they leave the system, do other people have that same personal connection and want to take on that job? And that's not been sufficiently tested yet. And when that, that gentle step gradually becomes, you know, a flow of people leaving the job, will the, will the system be able to cope? 
Yeah, and so so I don't want to spend too much longer on this section because we've got a lot more to talk about. But just briefly, um, when we spoke yesterday, Tim, you said that that there are three things that need to happen to fix multi academy trusts uh, that aren't happening currently. Um, would you mind to just briefly outline what those are? Oh yeah, now you really test my memory, I've got it no, here if you want to know. It's perfectly all right. It's inspection. We've got to sort out the inspection. We've got to sort out the regulation because that's not clear. And I think we've got to sort out a democratic voice. Three out of three. There you go. Perfect. Yes. And so, thank you. Sorry to interrupt you there. Um, so democratic accountability, which isn't happening currently. Proper regulation. You were saying that that's why there's so many sort of scandals around um, people yeah. paying themselves huge amounts of money and other strange financial irregularities. And the third one is that they can be inspected, which which is not happening currently. Um, so just briefly, with regard to the democratic accountability thing, because it was it's what we were talking about earlier, how what would that look like in a multi academy trust? Well, I I've already said to you, I think there should be an observer status for a local councillor on each trust and each body should have a, a councillor on it. You know, each school will have an advisory body or even a governing body. They, they're calling it different things in multi-academy trust. I'd have somebody elected on all of those because they do serve the local community. And each multi-academy trust in our, in our suggestion would be accountable because they would be organised in local groups they'd be accountable through the local scrutiny committee of the local authority. So each multi-academy trust would, from time to time, give an account of its contribution to the... And working in, you know, you can get a laugh on this, but working in how well they're working in multi-agency organisations for the most vulnerable and challenged children. Because as most schools and teachers would do, they'd they just heave a huge sigh of sadness because multi-agency work really hasn't worked as well as it could. And the local authority with the health authority on what is now called an integrated care service is responsible for making sure that the most vulnerable are getting a reasonable deal. So it falls naturally into the local scrutiny committee to get to, to receive a report on that. We do outline, but we'll come on to that when we talk about Ofsted and inspections. We outline, we think the focus should shift from the, a focus on individual schools to a fo fo focus on those collaborative partnerships so far as Ofsted is concerned. At the moment, Ofsted doesn't even inspect multi-academy trusts. We think that's wrong. Okay, so so let's move on. The, the next the next part of the book um, looks at the what you describe as the three sided wheel uh, of curriculum, pedagogy, and assessment. And and the, the 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 overarching thing that I took away from that chapter is that often um, government policies haven't really focused on all three of those at once when that when that needs to be happening, right? And so we're looking at, for example, fixing assessment, but not really thinking about the curriculum or pedagogy and so on. Um, so 
and, and I have some specific questions that, that arise from this chapter, but I'd just be interested to hear your reflections. Uh, Mick, I'll start with you on this one. Um, what's your, what was your big takeaway from this, from this um, part of the analysis? Well, I, th I think, uh, as you just said, that rarely does central government look at all three together. So it, it builds a curriculum as though it's separate from qualifications or it sets up a qualification regime and then asks the awarding bodies to, uh, to define what their courses would be to go towards that qualification. And that has enormous impact for the curriculum. So you get different things pressing in on, 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 on those. And then the pedagogy results from whatever the accountability system is forcing upon it at the time. So they, the three-sided wheel gets out of sync and it gets a very bumpy ride. Tim Oates, in our interview with him, uh, he, he was the one who led the review for Gove of what the curriculum would be, he led the advisory group. Yeah. He, he said, oh, you know, we didn't really look at the secondary end of it because the, the awarding bodies published the exam specs and that's the curriculum. Now, it seems a bit odd that you don't have the curriculum from which you would expect children to learn things that you could then examine. And, and obviously, if you did them in, in tandem, you would get a lot further. But the pressure of the uh, qualification regime and the accountability, accountability uh, stakes for that mean that pedagogy distort the curriculum. So the issue is that the curriculum is always distorted. You can write a national curriculum, which you then interpret as a school curriculum, uh, but very shortly after it's written, it's distorted by teachers who are doing the best, but actually uh, teach what they think's in it as much as what's in it, because teachers typically think what's inspected, what's tested, what children enjoy learning, what they like teaching and what they know about. And there's plenty to teach, so they leave stuff out. So for example, speaking and listening is less addressed than reading and writing because reading and writing are tested and speaking and listening isn't. And yet most people would argue that children with fluency, children who are articulate and children with a good vocabulary tend to do better than others. But we don't we don't give the time to that because we're giving the time to teaching phonics all the time because that will be tested. So the, the, the message in the book is that we've got to be much clearer about what it is we want our children to learn, back to the purposes, uh, stop secretaries of state constantly meddling with the curriculum and then make a curriculum that's fit for purpose, the purposes that we want, and examine that to create qualifications. And in the book, we talk about the sadness that the Tomlinson Review, which was proposing the link between practical academic, the link between vocational and scholarly activity, that, that ground to a halt because of politics and there's an interesting bit about out the sliding doors on that. Mm. Um, and we talk about the enormous impact of inspection and the uh, accountability regime through league tables and so on, on the way teachers teach in the classroom. And the fact that if we had clear purposes, we'd aim for that much more. What was that sliding doors moment? Why was it was it Blair who, who um, pulled the rug from the Tomlinson report? Yeah, uh, the, the, the Mike, Mike Tomlinson was telling us about the fact that, you know, he had recommended the diploma for some youngsters. The diploma was unfolding. There were trials. Actually, there are some people who may be listening to this who got a diploma qualification because 12, a group of schools across the nation began to give the diploma to their youngsters and some of them passed the first trial oh, really? program. 
Uh, but um, the, 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 uh, another group of people were arguing that this wasn't the way to go and that A-levels were vulnerable because of the, you know, the gold standard would drop and all this sort of stuff. And um, A-levels are very important on the international market. And so there was a, a little bit of worry growing. And then there came a, an important event that Tony Blair was speaking at and Mike Tomlinson outlined how his, his statement that A-levels were here to stay basically saw the saw the, the deployment model in decline. And Ed Bors reinforces that, that the, he took over as Secretary of State and the diploma was dead in the water, but we still kept developing it. And in a way, that's a, a little bit sad, isn't it, for those teenagers who did the diploma when the government had already decided it was going nowhere. Yeah, yeah. So, so staying staying with assessment for for a moment, I'd like to just share with you another excerpt from, of your own words, if I may, because there there are so many really quotable passages um, from the book, and this is one that's squarely about assessment and something that uh, not not many people realise. So you, you start by saying most most adults smile about the fact that exams are the same today as they were in their day, a spit out all you can remember experience, so that we can pass and then forget it all. We persist with this rite of passage for young people, archaic in nature, a sort of trial by ordeal. When else in life would we enter a room, sit a metre away from everyone else and work in silence for two hours? In real life, presented with a problem at work, most people would immediately contact others, ask for opinions, test solutions, seek information, pool knowledge and construct solutions that colleagues would critique. Instead, to measure a pupil's capability, we have the annual mass culling of 16-year-olds, which is a brutal phrase, but fair, I would say. The annual mass culling of 16-year-olds, alongside the spectacle of celebrations on results day, the leaping girls uh, on the front page of all the broadsheet newspapers, as uh, various numbers of grade nines or A stars are celebrated, as something that's come to light recently, um, with the with the so-called the mutant algorithm um where when we we didn't have it, we didn't have exams in the first year of the pandemic and so Ofqual sort of invented a way to to distribute grades um in this grossly unfair fashion um and but what most people don't realize and that you make the point in the next paragraph is that normally the GCSC exam grades are calculated by an algorithm which carries many of the same inaccuracies and, and unfairnesses but they're buried and it was it was the mutant algorithm that sort of exposed it and that wasn't a one-off thing was it because we don't have like you talk in the you talk in the book about the difference between norm referenced um grades grading where you have like a set proportion of you know grade like grade nines down to grade ones and and you have a set proportion of those and then the alternative to that is criterion referenced where you know it's like do you meet this standard if so you pass if so you don't if not you don't but but we don't sort of currently have a purely norm reference thing. They call it the statistical model, don't they? Where we've basically got a norm reference system, but then they do loads of statistics on it after the after the the grades have been in, so as to distribute the grades afterwards. And and that statistical manipulation of that data, if you like, is also prone to many of those same problems that that the mutant algorithm was was causing so i don't like i say i don't think many people realize like what a mess it is already and how little 
test retest reliability there is you know that when when for example you ask a young person to sit the same exam a few weeks or months apart or when you even ask for the same paper to be so it used to blow my mind when i was a science teacher and we'd send a paper off to be remarked sometimes and it would come back three grades higher or three grades lower even than than beforehand and you think like, how can there be such a ridiculous margin of error um and that stuff's happening rampantly already isn't it um, and so again, you know, the case for the case for changing this is is very strong. I think uh, before we get into any of the solutions, do you have anything to add to that currently? Oh, we, well, we did ask um, secretaries of state what what they wish they'd known when they were in the job, or what they would have done differently, and things like that. And David Blunkett revealed when we asked him what he w- wished he'd known, he said he wished he'd understood what norm referencing was because he, he didn't understand, and had he known, he would have addressed it. And he, he, followed that, he, he followed that up with the fact that the, his view was that the exam system is shot. That's the phrase he used. And Kenneth Baker, who had brought in GCSEs, was vehement in his view that GCSEs are not fit for purpose at all, and they do no good to children. It's almost like pulling up your own plants, isn't it? You know, he, he just wanted to see that system ended. We think they're grossly unfair. We think the the way children are assessed is grossly unfair. It's, 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 it's not fair to them because they're told that if they work hard and, achieve, and can do things, they will pass at a certain grade. I go in classrooms where children are told, now, if you get this right, you'll get three marks and accumulate marks at this rate and you will get a grade. The fact is we don't know what the grades will be until after the marking has taken place. So that that's an unfair thing to say to children. And it, it, it just, it's a system that can't keep going. Um, the, the, the current ministerial position is that getting back to proper exams is the fairest way to assess children. Well, yeah. we're not assessing children. What we're doing is sieving children so that we get certain ones at the top of the sieve going through the sieve and certain ones getting stuck in the sieve because they aren't going to go any further in the system. And we've, got, we've just got to be open about what the process is. I'm, I'm afraid I think many, many teenagers work it out from a long way back yes. that, that this system is wrong because it leads to bizarre practices such as forecasting at the age of 11 how many GCSEs you'll get at the age of 16. Now, we wouldn't forecast what size shoes children needed by measuring them at 11 and guessing at what they would need at 16. We wouldn't give them their trousers to wear in five years' time or their underwear, but we do it. We, 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 we tell them that if you work at your current rate, you will get a certain grade because we think this is your ability. Now, as Tim said earlier, it was in the mid-'80s that people started to question this notion that children are born to be a certain ability and schools will make a difference. We've got to see that our job is to make a difference. I'll just finish by saying criterion reference is where if, for example, I'm learning to play the trumpet, there is a test that tests me on a certain level of trumpet playing. Mm. I turn up to the ABRSM test and somebody sees whether I can do it. And if I get it, I get level six or level five or level four. In, in, Norm referencing, it depends on how all the others play trumpets before we know what what we end up what we end up with a grade. And we surely there's a way that we can do better better assessment. Yes. And we can talk about that if you want. We we make proposals in the book for 
how assessment can be better organised and cheaper. I mean, I haven't mentioned the fact that the assessment regime is a drain on funding. It, it is a, um, outsourced to private companies that they, you know, it's in their interest to keep it complicated. Of course. And it's in their interest to not try too hard to make it fair because this is this is how they make their profit for their shareholders. Yes. And, and there's a common misconception, I think, that some people hold that, that you need to fail a certain proportion of young people in order for the passes of others to mean anything, because otherwise it's just sort of like all must have prizes. But that's just not the case, is it? Like you don't have to force everybody to sit a trumpet test in order to recognise that Miles Davis was amazing at playing the trumpet, right? And there are loads of people who are really good at it now. Likewise, with with lots of things, but we seem to think that it, that it, that it's okay and therefore it's somehow necessary to force kids. Essentially, technically, it's not mandated, but to all intents and purposes, it is to force them to sit, for example, a GCSE maths exam that we know they're going to fail, just so that you know the the the, the grade fours will will mean something. Like it just seems so profoundly unethical that that we do that. Yeah, it is unethical because when, when GCSEs were brought in, the idea was that there would be grades that allowed children to show what they could do. So if if nobody was in the bottom grade, that's fine. And and because we've shown that they can improve. What we now know is that norm referencing means that some children are going to be in the bottom half of the, that, that uh, bell curve. Yeah. And, and we accept that. The system since 1870, when schools began, was to try and find the children that we needed for our economic future. And gradually, when we got to 88, we realised that all children could have a future if we allowed them to learn the sorts of things they needed and tested them and, and awarded them the recognition for that. So exams can be a motivator, but children have got to think that they can, they can do well in them and, and show what they can do. But in the, in the current situation, it's it's predestined that some are going to fail. That's where you get the forgotten third. Yeah. Tim, I don't know if you want to come in. Uh, no, I, I think you've covered it, both of you, really rather well. What's wrong with the system? And uh, we do suggest ways in which, in our last chapter, we suggest ways in which we could uh, improve the system. Because it always struck me as very odd that... Um, there was a there was a, even teacher union leaders said the teachers don't want to do the assessment because they they can't do it. Well, I've never yet met a good teacher who can't assess where a youngster is and where they ought to go to next. So I really don't accept that. I do accept that it's become so mysterious through these hidden mutants and the existing organisation that existing teachers say, well, I can, really can't explain why that child has got that outcome, as you introduced this piece with. So what we're suggesting as an answer is that exams and experiences that will contribute to the development of a child's fulfilment, um, they will be experiences, they will be much more than simply the exams we recognise, that they should be agreed and set nationally, but the assessment should be done locally. It might be moderated regionally. It's much easier to moderate outcomes now using virtual and the digital age yeah. than it was when you all had to move to different places. Um, 
and that each school or partnership of schools should have a license to assess. We've now got, haven't we, um, an, an, an association of chartered assessors in education. Yeah. And they yeah. should <coughs> issue a license and there should be lead assessors in each of the schools. And we should trust those groups. Now, if on inspection and an air a, a partnership was found to be out of kilter by looking at evidence then their license could be suspended they could be put under another uh, partnership or another school until they were assessed as having recovered their 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 ability to do it but they shouldn't penalize the children in the system and i would say that that outcome will be kids coming out more rounded because you'll be assessing their experiences and Mick will come on and explain two of our foundation stones which talk about youngsters doing, well, you know, the EPQ, the um, Extended uh, Personal Qualification, people do alongside A-level. Yes. That sort yes. of development which can be not just a written outcome, it can be a creative outcome, it, it can be ways in which we would realise and show that a child was developing the purposes which we set out and which we think would be the first task in a reformed education system to be clear about what the purposes are. But we could easily have a system of exams and assessment which was based on the partnerships of schools we, we we could have a system of inspection where Ofsted came along and inspected a particular school that they nominated allow the partnership to inspect another one but the report would be on the partnership and what they'd be doing is looking at those schools and asking themselves do does this multi-academy partnership do what it needs to do we'd remove the gradings of outstanding good etc of course there'll be some schools there always will be a school that fails somewhere and we're not trying to dodge that if, if a school is in a terrible position like that then we need to identify it and be clear about it what we are saying is that we need to get away from this outstanding good requires improvement every school requires improvement and an inadequate school uh, the fourth, the fourth one, um, and and we think it's perfectly possible to introduce a system like that, and it's much closer to systems of inspection and examination in other authorities. If you want to keep track of national standards, well, let's have samples at certain ages, rather like the international pearls and PISA and TIMS, and keep ourselves abreast of what really is happening um, when you're not preparing kids for an e exam or a test or an experience, just moderate your judgment with occasional random national sampling. We used to have it. It was introduced uh, in the 1980s under the Assessment of Performance Unit, and then it was abandoned. Great pity that it was.
But I think there is an answer to this, and it's somewhere along those lines. Yeah, and and, and so you talk about the the need to move to a criterion referenced um, system of assessment, and I want to just share with you something. We talked about this yesterday, but for the benefit of listeners, um, so to move away from this norm referenced model where we're, we're grading kids on the curve essentially, and saying like, have you met this criterion? A bit like you would with a with a with a trumpet exam right and so like every time you get a grade when you get your grade one when you get your grade one trumpet certificate that's a punch in the air moment isn't it you're like get in there i've got my grade one let's go for grade two next whereas at the moment if you get a grade one in math it's like oh that's not good you know that that's not a good grade to get um and so so i was there was a there was an off-qual report that was that, uh, that was published around 2014 when they brought in the new numerical system of grading away from using letters um, which seems to be a good example of just a pointless move, if ever there was one. Um, and it says, it says this, it says, when GCSEs were first developed in the mid-1980s, the government's intention was that criterion-related grades would be introduced as soon as possible, with candidates who had reached the required standard being awarded those grades. And then it says, despite heroic efforts, it proved impossible in practice to meet that intention. So GCSEs have never been criterion referenced, close quote. And that's that was my question that I wanted to put to you yesterday, but I'd like to ask it you again, again just now. That the, what were these supposedly heroic efforts at criterion referencing? Is this really like just some undoable idea? Or is it just that it was, it was again, a weird sort of political sliding doors decision that was made to move away from this? Well, some, sometimes you... you you justify the policy that you're bringing in by saying the old policy won't work whatever we do about it. And we I, we reject that. that criterion referencing can be brought in, so can when ready testing, but not if you're still trying to hang on to the old model that's there in the first place. I mean, there's a whole question about, you know, why, why are these children herded up in June to be taken into these rooms to be tested I mean, done mock exams and now pre-mock exams. I mean, soon we'll be doing fetal mock exams the way we're going on. That 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 actually, as children leave to get their final exam before they get their grade, they're not punching the air and saying, "I've done well in history with my grade," or "I'm doing well." What they're actually saying is, too many of them are saying, "I'll never have to do history again. I'll never have to study English literature again." So instead of inculcating that joy of history or that joy of literature, you're actually turning children away from it because they think study means examination and worse, practice for examination. So they don't even study the play. They learn a few quotes from it because that's what the teacher knows is going to come up in the exam. And that's this gameplay. And that, in a sense, is the result of the, the absolutely stringent uh, accountability measures that are in place and the whole system is this three-sided wheel is unable to turn properly because of the factors that are weighing in on it so there weren't heroic efforts there were a couple of efforts and not very we want what the paper that you're talking about is justifying the way forward not explaining the way back that's one of the cleverest, cleverest slides of hand i'd be wanting on the back of that to challenge you, James, to go to the off-qual and say, could you elaborate for me? I'm doing some research. Could you elaborate for me what these heroic efforts were? Because the truth is there were eight exam boards 
They're all competing with each other. Eventually, they were reduced into three. And by the way, Mick, it's Edexcel that's private, owned by Pearson. Sorry, the other two, sorry, yeah, the yeah. other two, the other two are charities. Yeah, but but uh, I, I'm just thinking somebody would get get at us if we yeah. if we if apologies. We don't <laughs> right. Okay, but they still make a profit. And the charity, the OCR, that makes its profit, gives it to Cambridge University. And I can think of more worthy causes than Cambridge <laughs> University. But it brings me on to a discussion which we didn't record um, in our book with um, Kenneth Baker, whose grandchild is at Cambridge University, and it was describing a much more enlightened way of doing exams that his grandson was experiencing at Cambridge University. Uh, and it involved not being a recall of information, but being an interpretation of information. So it was down the academic route, but he was describing a system that was much more useful academically. So when we come back to the heroic efforts, if you look at the criteria used in many universities for postgraduate degrees, there are very clear criteria in or, uh, linked to the, the, the percentage of exams. And those criteria, if they are met, mean that a certain number will get that grade in the, uh, either get a or a credit in their master's degree, for example. And I believe that that also obtains in some of the undergraduate courses. So if criterion referencing can be done at that level, if it can be done at the, the level of the trumpet playing, and we're agreed it can, if it can be done in a driving test, what is it that needs a heroic effort to introduce it into the overwhelming majority of children at their most vulnerable age, when at the moment they're required to take that exam at 16, because everybody confuses individual assessment with the collective assessment of the school, when we want exams that you take when you're ready to pass them, not at a preordained point, who would say that everybody got to take their driving test, whether they like it or not, at the age of 18? Of course they wouldn't. Some will, some won't. Yeah. But on the whole, people take the driving test when they're ready to pass it, not when they are destined to fail it. So we think... And, and also you wouldn't take it on the 3rd of July, everybody at the same time. Sorry, Tim. <laughs> no, I accept that. So we've got a reform that we think should be implemented, James. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's, it's just such a waste, isn't it? They, like, I know so many kids who f leave school feeling bad about themselves because of this. It's not just not getting your math certificate. They come to they, they they think badly of themselves as people. They think like I'm not somebody who can learn that I could, that I'm always going to be rubbish at maths, but also that I'm just I'm just not an academic person. I'm not a learning person. There's lots and lots of adults in this country who never pick up a book ever. They never read. Like millions of adults, something like five million, never read. And I and I would wager that that's at least partly because of the bruising time that they had in the school assessment system. Where they come out feeling like failures because we have we've known this since the seventies. There's some work around self worth theory, Covington and Beery. They're like, what happens is that kids stop trying. 
Because if you don't really try hard, then you can't really fail. Like you might fail your math test, but you're like, yeah, well, I didn't. Ca- I don't care about math anyway. I don't really listen in lessons. I don't do my homework. I didn't revise. And and so and that's when you, what you when you get to that point where you're literally kids have got the handbrake on. They are just like, you are not taking me anywhere on this journey because my self worth is at stake here. And me, me like feeling okay about myself is more important than me having like a, a go at passing this a test in a subject that I haven't chosen to study. And like you say, like at this particular point in time, and it might be that some of them might have horrendous things going on in their home life at that point in time, whatever it might be, family breakups or mental health issues. They, they might have been perfectly, perfectly well placed to pass their maths or English or whatever it might be a year or two later but that isn't that isn't an option and so I'm, I've just, I made a note of when ready testing that clearly is something that that needs to that needs to happen and obviously this is something that lots of people are looking at at the moment the rethinking assessment group in particular um, are looking at this and we'll, we'll come on to the recommendations uh, next Okay, so we're going to come into the final part of this conversation now. And I always ask people three questions, really. One is like, what are the positives? Because it's, it's, you know, by its nature, something when we're talking about rethinking education, it's very easy to focus on the negatives and the things that we need to fix. But there are loads of amazing things. And you've been working in, in schooling for decades. I'm sure that you could point to 100 things. So what, what do you think we're getting right currently? What is it that you'd really like to boost the signal of or see more of? The second question is like, what, what do you see as the major challenges that we need to face? And the third question is the solutions to those challenges. Um, and, and in the final chapter of the book, you talk about, about you know, solutions and there, there, are, there are six foundation stones, which I think we'll probably talk about. And then there's 39 steps where, where it breaks it down into a much more sort of granular level as to what, what specifically you, you think needs to happen. And then, and then to round it off, I want to ask a broader question, which was a recommendation from a, from a listener, which was like, how do we actually make this stuff happen? How, how how do we actually bring about these changes that, that we need to see? So let's start with positives and I'll go to you first, Mick. Well, I think at the moment we, we, we've got the uh, probably the most committed ever group of teachers based in our schools that we, we've ever had. The people I meet in schools are absolutely fundamentally committed to making a, a, a difference to the life chances of children and that's typically been the case with regard to good teachers forever but the group we've got now are absolutely committed and they are really focused on doing the best they can the problem they've got is that they're hamstrung by a system that is uh, constraining their talent constraining their natural uh, their natural condition of helping children in every context and that then leads into the area that we need to develop which is building teacher expertise so that they can handle the increasingly complex childhood that children are facing and and are presenting themselves and that's presenting itself in classrooms either through special education needs and disability or through what some people call behavior problems that other people realize are not necessarily behavior where children are being deliberately awkward but where where children are bringing their distress into school and are struggling to cope. So I think we're getting it right with the people we're selecting. We need to encourage more 
really high caliber people into teaching high caliber being those people who can really relate to youngsters those that can create the right the right weather in the classroom the teachers who work together for the good of the community as well as exploiting learning in every sense within the classroom we need more of those and we need to help them more quickly to understand and deal with the uh the, the complexity of childhood in the new in the new century uh so so that would be my, my what i think is going well and where we need to go next uh we'll come back later shall we to the one about what do we do to move it all on yeah thank you yeah so so the same question to you tim what would be your positives uh well i'd echo exactly what mick has just said you you know this, we start with teachers um in the in the end we end with teachers um there's that familiar uh, one uh, quotation which we give of Gino, um, but we do others as well. Um, uh, and and w the teachers that really make a difference to us are those that we know they care about us, but they also care about where our learning can take us and they inspire us into and have the talent to coach us into being able to improve on our previous best and that's why we've called uh the the, the uh, book has that subtitle because we think that's the key ingredient that if everybody within the schooling system was committed to improving on previous best then that would be me as a teacher me as a leader a school collectively a department collectively we'd never rest on our laurels we'd really always be trying to squeeze that extra bit out and make a success with all the youngsters. So we think that's a very strong element. And by the way, we think that when we started out, we heard people say in the staff room to us, what more can you expect from kids from backgrounds like this? Yeah. It's wonderful that we're now in a system where that doesn't happen and where even if it's thought about in a, in a tired afternoon, people know they shouldn't be thinking like that. Uh, so I think that's a huge strength to the system, but that's despite some of the things we've put in their way. And I'd like to turn to some of those challenges, and I've certainly got some ideas about what how we go about implementing those challenges. Well, yeah, one of, one of the foundation stones that we talk about is connected with building teacher expertise and creating expert consultant teachers, teachers who ha act as as in the medical profession as consultants and that build a team of people who, who who really get deep expertise in aspects of of schooling so not as we've currently got with people who are coordinators of different subject disciplines or send co's but actually really knowing things inside out so they're not organizers they're not necessarily leaders in the sense of being managerial they are the sort of people who do research who engage with the university locally or, or internationally people who, uh, who other teachers are attracted to because they're the ones who know about how to develop a child's writing or how to improve speech in children who are struggling or how to help children with adhd so we're not interested in simply recording that children have got adhd and ensure that they've got support. What we want is expertise unleashed on these children that will help them to do the best that they can in the system. So our, our one of our proposals, our foundation stones, is for expert consultant teachers who would really make a difference. Slightly different from the old uh, ASTs, 
advanced skills teachers and slightly different from the subject leaders with you know the expert SLEs that were implemented a little ago little while ago we're talking about highly respected uh, well researched excellent practitioners whose job it is to build a team that deal with some of the challenges we face and exploit the opportunities we have rather than simply show other people what they do Yes, and you're talking about people who've got the expertise in specific areas that they're not just considered to be. Because I think the advanced skills teacher, the way that they were deployed previously, was like, "Oh, you're 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 highly you know experienced at teaching math. Say now go off and and help people in PE and drama and music and so on." And actually, the, these math specialists were thinking, "I don't really know anything about that." So you're talking about people in the expert consultant teachers with particular specialisms, aren't you? Working in more sort of focused ways. Yeah, and, and I mean, the AST scheme was, in essence, a good scheme, but it came alongside the move towards yet more marketing and the emphasis on school improvement, which was about dragging the worst schools up. And so ASTs became a, a sort of bargaining chip that some, some schools were able to use to increase their finance by selling expertise down the road to help. Now, we want to help. We want schools collaborating, but we want them collaborating about understanding of aspects of mathematics understanding of aspects of geography teaching or art teaching or aspects of our purposes that really need to be exploited in depth so it isn't the teacher who's got the silver bullet it's a community of practice that's getting deeper and becoming enthralling for teachers as professionals yeah thank you and so before we come into the rest of those foundation stones just a quick one to you tim um we we heard from, uh, a positive and a challenge from mick what 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 would you say is this is the the big challenge for you where, where would you start you mean you you mean uh, with the system yeah because well with the system I, I think that teachers come into schools with i think they would relate to the purposes that we've set out in our first chapter and that aren't set out for the schooling system as a whole. We referred to that. Mm. Um, and I think we need to be specific about that. And I think teachers will respond to that. And then we can adjust the system itself to respond to those purposes. And and we, we suggested another foundation stone that there should be a standing, uh, sorry, a framework commission, a schooling framework commission which would sit every 10 years, we have all the usual suspects on it, i.e., you know, teacher unions, CBI, churches, um, leaders of maths, so that whole range of people who in the past would feel they're stakeholders in the system. And they would run citizens, juries, etc., for a year and come up with a set of purposes. And they would come up with a 10-year plan, which in our view should be right in the middle of a parliamentary session so it doesn't become a prisoner of elections and they would come up with a plan and they would sit from time to time and the obligation on the secretary of state would be to show how any decisions he made or she made during the period that the 10-year plan existed was in accord with that plan or was different from the plan. Now, I'm not arguing that there might not be a case of them differing, but that having to explain why it was different and how it fitted in with the purposes of the schooling system, which we'd come up with. We think that should be chaired by the chair of the select committee, because the select committee also, it seems to us, comes up with the reports 
which get ignored every time they come up with. They're just received by the government of the day. And we think that that system of a, of a schooling framework commission would set the scene and it wouldn't remove the influence of politicians, but it would it would put a framework around it so that they weren't uh, individually, you know, an aberrant set of decisions, but they would fit in with a long term plan. So thank you. With with this staying on this school the schooling framework commission, and I really like it as an idea. It says in the book that this would comprise representatives of teacher and support staff unions, HMI, um, the, Her Majesty's Inspectorate, Charter College of Teaching, universities, the CBI, which is the Confederation of Business something Business and Industry, is it? Chambers of Commerce, trades unions, governors. Um, multi-academy trust boards, local government associations and bodies representing churches, faiths and charities together with politicians nominated from the main political parties and an additional membership by public election. I was thinking about that list and I was thinking that there might be some, some groups missing there and it might be that, that I don't know whether this is uh, intentional or not, but going back to that idea that I mentioned earlier about having a vertical slice team where you have a range of different stakeholders, I think my concern with, with the, the, the list that you, that you had there is that, that those people are all sort of considered to be experts in their fields, if you like, but there are, there are, there are some constituencies. I mean, so first of all, when you have only people who are experts, that, that that leads to a problem because of that that issue where people don't ask the stupid question expert groups fall into groupthink you know and we know that um quite well but there are also groups like teachers you know classroom teachers um i know you said that there was teaching unions there but i think that classroom teachers would very much want to be uh, included there people like sen specialists and early years specialists who again are, are very often overlooked and then the two big ones for me is parents and carers and young people. You know, through, through doing this podcast, I've come into contact with many young people who blow me away. Like they're across the detail. They understand what, what about the, the marketization of education and the way in which those ideas have shaped young people into basically being performing little widgets who've got to turn up on the day. And they're like, this isn't this isn't serving me It's what can I do for the school and not what can the education system do for me as a young person trying to find my feet in the world. Um, I wonder what you think about that proposal to to potentially expand that freight, that commission wider to include those additional voices. Now, the terms of reference of that group would de demand that they included those sorts of people and that they work with those sorts of people. Tim mentioned citizens juries. I mean, you can interpret that in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Um, so we're not talking about a group that goes in a room and makes all the decisions. They, they've got this ongoing job of interpreting the way in which education can unfold, talking about the way schooling might develop over time and advising the Secretary of State on how it should happen. And the Secretary of State's job is to either take that as a way forward or reject it, and in every action explain why they are accepting or rejecting the points made by the Standing Commission, the Schooling Commission framework. So it's not that that's an exclusive group, that's just the sorts of people that might help it to happen. Yeah, I see. It's not meant to be a definitive uh, list. It's it's illustrative list. And I absolutely accept. I mean, if you had everybody on it, it would never, how it would work would be very, very difficult. Yeah. And so we think exploring citizens' juries would be a good idea. 
There's actually the idea has been developed by a Professor Ram at Exeter University. And uh, we acknowledge in the book that we've got the idea from reading an article he's written about it. But we do think that that would be the way to go rather than suggest that there's um, a standing committee of what I would say the usual suspects uh, who who would suffer from the very criticisms that you're outlining to us, James. Um, and, and therefore, it is just saying, how do we devise a system that gives you a 10-year plan, some consistency of values, some consistency of purposes, and how do we get that body from time to time to say to the Secretary of State, how are you getting on with this plan? Which is what we want them to do. Yes. Yeah. And and so and you were saying that the the, the first task of this group would be to to establish this set of of like purposes and values uh, that that this whole thing needs to be rooted in. And I like the plurality there, you know, because like there is no purpose of education. You know, there are purposes, and there like different people have different values, different hopes and ambitions for themselves as teachers, as parents, and as young people. And it seems clear to me that we therefore need to not necessarily move away from the from you know the, the policy agenda of the last few years, but to diversify it, you know, so that we can be responsive and so that we can you know maintain maintain the benefits of what what happens currently, but also be reflexive and responsive to make sure that we're also able to meet the needs of that forgotten third uh, that you mentioned earlier. Um, so I love this idea, and it seems clear that, that based on the stuff that we talked about earlier, with the the, the chaotic nature of the the tombola of of um, of said the secretaries of state coming into office and out of office, and it's it just that needs to end. Like it's so clear that that needs to end, and we have a long term plan for education that's fed into by multiple voices. It's just is so clearly what needs to happen there. Do you want to come in there, Mick, before we move on to the next? Well, one? It's just a. a... A lot of organisations call for uh, taking education and health as well out of the political arena. And we, we think that that really isn't going to work, is it? It's a, it's a big cost to the, uh, to the, to the economy. It's, a, it's an area over which politics rightly have a view. But we, we think that the secretaries, no secretary of state is going to agree or, or government is going to agree to taking education or schooling out of politics and, and putting it to one side and all the, all the sorts of usual things, the moving goalpost uh, 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 argument, they're, they're not going to agree to that. But we do think this is a strong case for moderating the influence of secretaries of state as they come into office. And so organisations like Fed, like the, the uh, big education, organizations that are trying to build consensus would feed into this and make a big impact on it and be people who would uh, have a, a stronger voice than they currently do because secretaries of state would have to listen and respond yeah yeah i like it so far foundation stone one gets a big tick from me so number two is the open school uh tim what's the open school very quickly um just to say, the Open University was an amazing idea. I have that in your mind. Because when I went to Keele University, after being in Oxfordshire and before being in Birmingham and running the education department there, one of the things I noticed about the Open University 
was it had a profound effect on every other university because the materials and courses they developed were of the highest quality and they recruited their tutors from the existing university's staff to some extent in addition to their core staff at Milton Keynes in their headquarters. So it had a profound effect on the whole university system uh, and for the better. Mm. And, and just, just, just in case there are any international listeners who don't know what the Open University is. So this was an organisation that was set up. It was a government policy, wasn't it? Was it Callaghan? I'm not sure who it was who set that up. It was Wilson. It was Wilson. And Jenny Lee, who set it up. And it was the biggest achievement, I think, educationally since the, since the Second World War. In the last 60 years, the Open University is a huge success story. And, and it's basically... A university where you can do where adults can do degrees by correspondence. That's the basic idea, isn't it? Well, they do it not merely by correspondence. They do it by attending weekends and courses. And incidentally, they will people will know about it all over the world because their reach has been all over the world. So they've recruited people from all over the world. It's a huge success story. My point is this. The Oak Academy, which it, which has been developed during the uh, COVID crisis by one of the multi-academy trusts in a group, has produced distance digital lessons that are rather similar to the very best that a school can do. Some schools will argue about that, but they know that they can use the Oak Academy. But that is in a tradition of replicating schools and is very much handed over to the schools if they want to use it. Mm. What I'm arguing for and what we're arguing for in the setting up an open school is that every kid would belong to their own school, but also be a member of the open school. And in each school, there will be open school tutors. So in the local comprehensive school or the local grammar school or primary school, there would be somebody who was a tutor in the open school and they what the open school would do would be to curate the best set of resources, rich set of resources and provide a guide of opportunity for kids either to catch up or extend their learning or take experiences that could be rooted in the local community or could be rooted online. And we think that it's an absolute gift for an incoming Secretary of State to establish that. We think it should be established by putting down a huge sum of money as a one-off and leaving off the income from that capital sum. We've done that once before with Nesta, uh, which was set up by the Labour government to promote education, science, the arts, etc. Yeah. Uh, it's been done with the Education Endowment Fund by Gove. That was a good thing Gove did. We're critical of some of the things he did. That was a very good thing. Yeah, uh, and that, that had did. about a quarter of a billion pound budget, didn't it? It was something like 250 million over 20 years. Um, yeah. Which was a handsome... The, 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 fault, Go on. the fault with it would... Sorry to interrupt you, Joan, but the flaw in it is that it's on a burning platform. It's got to spend its money by the end of the 20 years. We wouldn't want that. We would want it to be in a model similar, shall we say, to the Paul Hamlin 
Foundation or the Esme Fairburn Foundation or the Nuffield Foundation or the Carnegie Foundation. In other words, there's somebody in there with the trustees that making it grow. I mean, if you looked at the Paul Hamlin Foundation, I think they started off with a very small sum of money. And then when Hamlin, uh, Paul Hamlin died, he, he put 300 million in. That, that, that 300 million is now over a, a, about a billion. It's probably taken a hit in the last week or two. But we're arguing that it should be an organization independent of government and not a call on revenue resources. And it should supplement. So if I'm working in a school, I want to know what the open school is doing because I know as an as a teacher that I had to get the richest and well-vetted resources because we suggest that the open school is run by a combination of the open university the um, chartered college of teaching the education endowment foundation those sorts of groups of people would be running it so it would be the profession advising and making sure it's running university university which has got a long history of success in 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 it and that would be what it was now at the moment the government is proposing a national academy and i think it's very similar and what we've got to do if they're insisting on doing it it needs to be independent of government it needs a huge sum of money and its purpose should be clearer than it is at the moment and we've tried to outline what that purpose should be Right. And and it says in, in this section of the book, it says that the BBC might be involved in this. It says there, there was a quote from a Guardian piece outlining this idea. And it says only the Beeb has the reach, the confidence and the infrastructure to rise to this challenge um, to go online. As in they did. Yeah, as they did with the Open University, they were always the partners with the Open University. So they were the former director of the BBC was very enthusiastic about us. Right. When we wrote uh, it was a guy called Bob Moon and I wrote a letter to The Guardian and he responded. And we think it's an idea whose time has come. We think we should do it. And it doesn't disturb the existing arrangements of any school. It simply brings to their within their reach the best possible resources so that they don't need to worry as much as they do at the moment when they run short of a particular expertise in a particular subject area, they will be able to use this resource to supplement what they do. Mm. So you're sort of saying that it's that it's different to Oak in that it's much broader, um, that it's not yeah. just re- replicating the school system and, it, and that it also it's, um, it's open for learners of all ages. Um, Absolutely. Parents will use it well and so will primary kids. We could we could call it Broad Oak. <laughs> uh, let's just park that. Uh, I can't compete with you on the on the puns, Mick. But uh, that was my that was my humble effort. Uh, okay, next up, um, go on. Only James, I'm just glad that you've identified mixed the source of the <laughs> That that I, I definitely picked up on. Um, okay, so the next two um, are, are, um, ideas of yours mainly, Mick, are they not? Um, the there's the two acronyms, the steps and elect. So steps is the seeking talent and extending participation scheme, and elect is extraordinary learners with exceptional creative talent. Can you talk us through these? Yeah, I mean, there are shared ideas throughout. So it's just that, you know, we, we seem as though we talk about different ones when we're chatting. They're, they're both um, ideas in our foundation stones that we think 
are the sorts of things that would make a difference really quickly to the system and emphasize some of the things that are going well and some of the uh, and given alternatives to some of the things we're worried about so these two schemes along with the other foundation stone the curriculum for childhood and the curriculum for adolescence are all about children and we actually think that even if they weren't adopted by a national system a, a national policy they could be in, implemented by a school or a group of schools in a trust or a local authority the, the notion is that uh, the Seeking Talent and Extending pa uh, Participation Scheme, STEPS, is an opportunity for children to engage in some sort of project that really matters to them for a real purpose with a real audience. Mm. And they would do that first steps in year six, just before they go to secondary school. So the sorts of examples of what they would do would be taken to secondary schools to show what they can do rather than relying on baseline testing. And they would do it again in year nine, which is next steps. And that would give an indication of where they got there. So it's a project of a, a proper piece of work that's extended, that demands they really get into uh, thoughtful planning and execution of their skills and talents based on something to do with the local community, something to do with the environment, something to do with the world of work, something to do with an interest that's developing in them about an aspect of schooling and they would be supported we suggest they get money to spend on it as well so they can go on visits or they can um, be inviting people to uh, they could buy resources to sort out what they're doing or inviting people to talk with them mm. and uh, that they would be assessed on it by an assessor where they would have to present their work and present their thinking and their understanding but the, the children would drive the program because it's them that's taking the steps, showing their talent and their participation. The other one, um, which we call elect, which is a bit of a play on, it's not quite select, you know, elective education is where like it. We, we believe every child's got talent and, and every child can use that talent if we only find it at the right moment in the right circumstances. So. Our ambition in that, extraordinary learners with exceptional creative talent, is that we we try to spot when a child's uh, interest or or their talent is starting to emerge and stoke it at just the right time by providing the right teacher, maybe through the open school, who's going to support them and move them on. And maybe not a teacher, maybe somebody in another field that's got the capacity to support them. And we recommend that about 20% of children each year between the years five and nine take part in this program. So we're not on we're on 20% at the right moment in the hope that they sustain their interest in whatever it is, playing a musical instrument, playing sport, understanding the world of art, becoming people who really dig deeply into scholarly work, people who uh, take themselves into the world of cookery or whatever it is, their talent, and we nurture that talent, and we spot 20, uh, aim for around 20% of children each year so that by year nine, every single child, regardless of need or aptitude or whatever, has been embraced by the scheme. And the challenge is to find the child at the right moment of maturity so that they remain uh, people who are absorbed by a talent and, and extending their creativity. Mm. But it's built on the thinking of um, Matthew Syed, who wrote that lovely book about uh, uh, being supported by 
you know, the right mentor and hard work and practice will get you a long way. He does actually dispute issues of talent, but never mind. It it really sort of helps us to move forward. But we think embracing children's interest at the right moment is what lies behind both of those schemes moving forward. And they fit within the curriculum for childhood and the curriculum for adolescence, which we think is the bringing together of our purposes for learning that we talked about several times. The purposes of schooling come into fruit in a curriculum that is more than simply taking children through a series of steps towards various tests and exams. So it's a it's thinking about their their learning in school, but it's also thinking about the support they need from various agencies, whether it's health, social care or whatever, to bring together the, the learning that children need in every aspect of their, their life. Thank you. So so this is the sixth and final. So the, so the final two um, foundation stones for the benefit of listeners are the expert consultant teacher, which we already talked about earlier. And the last one is this this idea that you just mentioned of a curriculum for childhood and a curriculum for adolescence. That was one thing that I was less clear about. Like why why is there two separate things, one for childhood and one for adolescence? Well, we, th- we think adolescence uh, is a fascinating area now. I mean, just just after the war, children used to leave school at the age of 14. Now they stay till 18 and 19. Hmm. Uh, 50 years ago, children had been in work for four and five years by the age of 18 and 19, associating with adults and being part of adult life. Now we keep them in school. Do we treat them in an adult way? I mean, they're more developed, many are more developed than they ever were 50 years ago. Do we treat them more as adults or do we keep them as children? So we think adolescence and childhood in the sense of the way we're talking about it, need to be thought of differently. We think adolescence is a, an incredibly complicated and becoming more complicated phase of life. It lasts longer than it ever did. It starts earlier for most children. For some children, it goes on a lot later than it ever used to. It's a case of, I mean, you're not quite a grown up, you're not quite a child, you're coming to terms with this change in yourself. And we think there's a big area of thinking needs to be done about that. Tim, do you want to come in? I do, yes. Just to back that up, I I think that we used to say, and I used to, uh, of course, it's tremendously important that if you invest earlier and earlier and earlier, the early years champions would say this and I would support that, then you eliminate lots of the problems later. And for instance, if I were critical of our book at the moment, and uh, both of us are, um, because we debate it and quite often say, God, we should have got some X and Y in, or did we get that quite right? One of the things about our purposes is that it's very it's very focused towards what children will become. Well, um, Mick particularly would spend his career in making sure that it isn't merely what children will become, they're endur- enjoying childhood. And therefore, we've got to make it as enjoyable and as stimulating as it possibly can be. It's not about who you're going to become all the time. It's who you are. And if if I were critical of our, our purposes, it would be that maybe we didn't get enough in about that, uh, that we should have done. But coming back to adolescence, Mick's so right. It's got longer. Uh, maturation happens earlier. Uh, the hazards for adolescence are much greater. 
social media is an obvious shorthand for that, but the recent Farage, um, Farage you know, uh, outcry about sexual harassment, uh, where amazingly Ofsted came along and said well, it's a huge problem. Uh, and and they've been inspecting schools for 20 years, as Mick says, and never mentioned it. So quite how they suddenly found it, but yes. then ignored it for yeah. 20 years. Anyway, but it's a big issue. And the other thing that I, if you look at autism, uh, and it is worth looking at autism as a, as a shorthand for the complexity of special educational needs and disabilities. It, when I was uh, 30 years ago, people, well, 20 years ago, people would have said the incidence of autism is about one in 10,000. Now I think people reckon it's about one in 36. And you ask yourself, come on, is that, what, what is that? Well, what they've discovered is that girls in particular, if you look at expertise, and there's so much to learn, if you look at experti the expertise, uh, they, psychologists and psychiatrists would now identify that with uh, that girls in particular during childhood uh, cover up the fact that they are autistic. But when they get into the hazardous teenage years, uh, it becomes more apparent that and they exhibit it. And so I think there are environmental factors that affect adolescence that we've not come to terms with. And we, we coined the phrase, just as there are adverse childhood experiences, we think there are adverse adolescent experiences. And I don't think we've taken enough thought for that. And that's why I totally back the notion of a, a curriculum for adolescence and a curriculum for childhood. But we are, of course, talking about a curriculum that is more than a set of information broken down into subjects that you are good at recalling on a fixed day in June. We're talking about a curriculum that incorporates knowledge, skills, judgment, intuitive judgment, um, and wisdom, etc., etc. The development of the full human being and the experiences that go into that. Mm. So children today and adolescents today have more opportunity than has ever existed before in this world, but they also face bigger challenges than their own age group has ever faced previously. So drink, drugs, sex, lack of exercise, poor diet, all the things that are about building a, a successful life for yourself in the way that you negotiate it, really need to be addressed as part of a curriculum not not as if the school's got time after it's done its uh, its accountability measures not not bang out a load of GCSEs and if you could just spend a few moments doing this it'd be really good we've got to see this as a rounded childhood for children and Tim's right we we reflect on the purposes and think we haven't emphasized enough the present but at least our purposes are, purposes are there for people to talk about maybe that that stand that schooling commission framework will come up with a, a properly 
balance set built on real consultation. Yeah, well, it, it has to be inclusive, that, doesn't it? Like, it ha- people yeah. have to see themselves in that and feel like they've been genuinely consulted and listened yeah. to. Yeah. Um, thank you. That was a really very, very persuasive response. I'm, I'm sold. <laughs> I'm sold on all six of your foundation stuff. So let's round this up. We, we've, we've just um, tipped over the three-hour mark, and I don't want to, um, to keep you too long or to, to uh, likewise to, to our listeners. Um, and so I'd like to round off with a couple of questions that are both about implementation and they're, they're, they're um, requests from listeners. So the first one is a, a question from uh, a, a listener called Ryan Campbell, who's, who's based out in, a, in a, an international school in Indonesia. And he was referring to the piece that you wrote. There was a piece that was published in the, in the Times Education Supplement, as you will recall, because you both wrote it <laughs> uh, this week. And it was about like, the shortcomings of the, of the knowledge-rich curriculum and how it doesn't go far enough in preparing kids for, for um, life beyond the school gates. And the, 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 there's the first bit of the article, which is about the knowledge-rich curriculum. And then there are, there's three sort of paragraphs with a load of questions. And Ryan specifically asked me to ask you these questions because he sees these as being central to international schools. And he asks, what would you do to address these in schools? So the questions are as follows. Do we want young people to think for themselves and to act for others? Would we like them to grow up fulfilled and committed to the fulfillment of others? Uh, The next one is, do we want to equip them to play their part in solving some of the world's most pressing problems like climate change and a lack of equity in our own and other societies? And finally, do we want our children to grow up to be able to make good judgments, whether in their own interests or those of others, and to do that um, will require them to follow certain value systems and to recognise that these change over time in different communities? So these are often the sorts of concerns that people in the rethinking education community, the people who I'm talking with a lot about around at the moment, who desperately want to see change, these are the kinds of, of, of concerns that are sometimes sort of, I think, slightly frivolously dismissed as like 21st century concerns. There's nothing special about the 21st century, but you could just argue that these are just like more pressing questions than how to balance a chemical equation, like how to, you know, like how to develop things that, that we consider to be more important than the diet of learning that, that young people are, are getting at the moment. And by the way, as a former chemist, we need people who can balance equations. I'm just not sure that it should be, you know, a priority for every kid when, there, when there's a lot of other stuff that we could attend to. So that, that's the first question is, what would that look like um, in, in the school? And I'll go to you first, Tim. Okay, well, first of all, those quotes come from our purposes because uh, I, re- I recognise them. Um, we think that that's why we want all the reforms that we've outlined in the system, because we think they get in the way of schools doing those four things that you outlined to us about fulfilment and arguing a just case and all those sorts of things, get in the way of them devoting time to it because they're being measured on a system that is only measuring what uh, only valuing what's easily measurable and and so uh, we, we we've tackled i think some of the issues that would enable that to happen but it's interesting that that comes from an international school uh, or a british school overseas mm. uh, because i think they are in a position 
to do much more than is the case because they're slightly less scrutinized by a huge system uh, than is the case with uh, with us. They also have grown in number. So the very sad thing is that one of the drains on our system is the expansion of those schools overseas and the draw they have on a supply of suitably qualified and committed teachers here. And of course, the danger is, in answering this question honestly, which I am, which is saying, I think the international school is better at doing it. I might, I might, uh, somebody listening to this podcast might say, well, I better go and teach in an international school or a school overseas because I'm going to have more room to do some of the things that I want to do. And that would be a huge shame. And that's why I would want to persuade people that now is the time that we can reform our schooling system to give us the space and make us feel we've got the time. We've certainly got the commitment to do the sort of activities within our school that enable that to happen. But I think Mick will have plenty of wise things to say about this. <laughs> Just, I mean, James' question about the knowledge and those bits that appeared in the TES article saying, would we want our children to do these? And your question was, so, so what? Because if we're not careful, they're just phrases that get used and almost they don't sound important as though returning the knowledge, the facts is really important. I, th I think we've got to look at how we know that our, our children are learning effectively and applying their knowledge. We're not against knowledge. Knowledge is fine. Knowledge has always been there. And it's really important that children have knowledge that takes them somewhere and develop that thing called wisdom that Tim was talking about. But if children are becoming more knowledgeable, they're not simply spitting it back onto the, the paper that we're asking them to show they've got the knowledge. They're, they're asking increasingly sophisticated questions. They're, they're challenging the knowledge. And you see a greater independence and volition in the children in terms of finding the information that will help them to question the knowledge and take it forward. They make informed predictions, hypotheses, judgments, and they have an inkling of whether those judgments and hypotheses are accurate, reliably, reliably accurate and valid. They, they, they have a bigger understanding of how to work with others productively, not just for social reasons, but for reasons that would take, take the knowledge further they develop a refinement and a polish in the products that they're developing so that they're not simply doing exercises, but they're producing things that demonstrate what they understand and show initiative in pushing forward further purposes. And they respond properly to audiences so that they can, they can see and demonstrate the knowledge in a context that makes sense. So what you want are youngsters applying the knowledge and becoming more effective as learners, not simply people who are accumulating knowledge. We want real geographers, real biologists, real scientists, real artists, real linguists, real technologists, real faith leaders. We want people who can use knowledge and apply it, not simply build it up. Well, I think you rose to the challenge to say something wise there, Mick. <laughs> that, that's brilliant. Kids asking questions, independence, volition, 
making hypotheses and judgments and testing them, working with others, taking knowledge further, authentic audiences, authentic real world problems that they're working on, applying knowledge to the real world. Um, I'm liking all of that. And it sounds like th th we're talking about a lot more student agency here, aren't we? We're talking about the creating time and space within the curriculum, perhaps through things like the steps and elect program that you were talking about earlier, but perhaps even more in like an ongoing way so that there's time like, th like Derry Hannum, for example, suggests that we should just like just tomorrow we could do this. You could just carve out 20 percent of the curriculum time for young people to pursue their own interests um, and to pursue things like this. Um, did you want to come in there um, further, Tim? Uh, no, not really. I, um, ju just to say you've summarised exactly where where we ought to be. Um, and my view is it's the time to do it. Um, you know, we've got another um, repeat. I think it's a repeat of where we started our story. Uh, namely, we're on the cusp of people saying, surely we can do better. And I think this white paper will be the stuttering first step of a dialogue which will lead, I think, in four, five, six years time to a major act of parliament with purposes much more clearly articulated, people feeling they're involved and a much better balance between what's directed at the centre and what is a feeling of agency and influence at the school level. And uh, I'm optimistic, incredibly optimistic uh, of the future. We've achieved much, but we'll achieve much more in the future. I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that. And, and so so I'd like to ask you about that in more detail. And, and, to, and, it, and it speaks to, to the second question that came from another uh, listener and future guest, I should say, Mina Wood, um, who um, has has been involved in lots of groups over the years who are trying to to shape how we should do things differently and her question is simply how do we make it happen how can we bring this how can we bring this to pass and like you mentioned earlier that there were there are four secretaries of state who have really sort of made a difference baker blunkett balls and gove um and and some of the other ones like more more recently with williamson and I think the, the, the jury's out for me on, on Zahawi, but it, it looks like he might be somebody else who's essentially taking direction from, from Downing Street rather than really sort of pushing through a, a homespun policy agenda. He doesn't, he doesn't come across as somebody who's thought that deeply about, about education prior to his appointment to that post. And so given that we're not in positions of power, <laughs> um, but there is a groundswell of interest, and that's sort of what I wanted to tap into with this the Rethinking Education Conference later in the year, which I'm thrilled that you're both going to speak at. And I'll also be at Northern Rocks, uh, which I know you're going to speak at as well uh, in June. Um, what can we do to, to, to actually make this happen? Because I, 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 it's lovely to hear that you that you feel that optimis optimism, Tim, that you see that this white paper could be the first faltering step towards a major sort of system level reform. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I, I don't currently share that optimism like, as, as it would come because for example Callaghan was the prime minister right when he made that speech he was the prime minister I don't see the leadership coming from Johnson yeah that's going to that's going to crystallize this and also you were talking about this happening in sort of five or six years I imagine that there might be people listening to this thinking we need this now like my child is not happy in the system now or I don't feel as a teacher that I can teach in a school that's aligned with my values now and and so 
it's a really hard question. I want to just <laughs> acknowledge that. It's a really hard question that Mina's asking, but it's the question on everybody's lips, which is what can we actually do in order to bring about this this change? Do we have to wait for the for the for the nod from from whoever the incumbent Secretary of State is, or is there some other means by which we can bring about this this reality that you've that you've fleshed out in such granular detail? Well, I think that Mick would... Uh, I don't think there's anything we've fleshed out. Some of the system changes, yes. So we, we think there are kind of toxins that get in the way of schools doing what they want to do. And we outline those. I mean, the reform of the exam system and assessment, that might be one, mind it. Uh, and he might tackle the kind of dislocation of governance is another. But I think there's lots that brave teachers can and do do already. So if you looked at the XP school, for example, if you looked at loads of schools that I've been to, uh, I'm uh, even to mention them is to bring worry to them. So I don't want to um, because they're going to be inspected and we're probably seen as part of the blob. <laughs> but there are schools out there. There's there's the big education movement. Uh, there's Surrey Square, there's St Ebbs, there's a school down in the edge of Brighton, primary school, whose head we met recently. I could give you lists of schools where you give your eye teeth to get your kids, where you'd say to any teacher, if you can get a job there, get there. There always have been, there always will be. Now, what's it in, what is incumbent on them to do is this. They need to form networks with other people of like-minded approaches who are doing things in different parts of the country. And they need to link up in alliances so that people at the centre of the system who control the system, and Mina's right in one sense, until that changes, we're not really going to be able to do a lot. Um, so that those in the centre begin to think, by God, this is not just one aberrant person doing it well there's a network of people doing it well now the, those networks exist they're very informal my challenge to those involved is to become explicit in your network because if you're doing something it's very helpful to be able to say look we're, we're, we're not we're not crazy one-offs kind of um, people here that i could take you to other schools that are doing exactly what we're doing and that's actually what needs to happen. Uh, people can't, uh, you know, Derry Hannon talked about if 20% of your time was doing that. Well, Mick's going to be rude to me when I suggest this, but, uh, you know, there's nothing to stop day 10, which one school did for years after year after year. You know, fortnightly timetables in secondary mm -hmm. schools. I mean, there's nothing to stop different weeks doing different things. The, the accommodation of step and elect is easy to do. It's a timetabling challenge, but I bet you there are schools already doing it. And what we need to do is to network those schools. And we've never been in a better position with the advent of social media uh, to connect teachers to each other and particularly to connect those teachers who are doing good things and changing life's experiences for the better for the children who are lucky enough to be in their class or in their school. Mm. 
I'm liking it. So, so essentially, I, 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 I would just go on, yeah, I would agree with all that. I think teachers can generate, if you like, the the power to make a difference and conceal that. On the other hand, uh, as an additional thing, I'd just throw in that so many in the teaching profession are people who are just generally nice people who do as they ask, uh, do as they are asked, and they they almost uh, they fit a certain part of the demographic, which is that. You know, they're diligent public servants who do the sorts of things people would want. I think that we've got to demonstrate a, a voice in the profession, which is not simply through trade unions and professional associations, but active voice that takes things forward. And if if uh, head teachers in a local community could organise themselves to get onto the uh, surgeries of local MPs, and turn up one after the other every 10 minutes and tell the MP exactly what they thought of the current system all across the country, it wouldn't take very long before that message was filtering back to the DfE and to number 10, because it would be a fairly consistent message and it would make a really big difference. If, if teachers started being in touch with MPs, you would see a certain way forward. I mean, I could say... Perhaps we ought to have a few league tables based on MPs' constituency because that would uh, show a change in the in the accountability regime very quickly. But I, I think there are things that people can do. All the things Tim talked about, about finding that sort of gravitational pull of professionalism, but there are things that people can do to influence local communities. The head teachers writing in community magazines, head teachers writing uh, in in. Uh, wider audiences than the education community. We're very good at talking to each other and less good at talking outside. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the case. I could I could also point to to schools such as you were mentioning. There's a few a few former guests on the podcast. There's a guy called Colvan Atwal, who's the head of two schools uh, out in East London, sort of the border of, of Essex. Um, who's done some incredible work in, in turning a school around in a really cool way um, through through teacher inquiry, through professionalising teachers and teachers' voices to drive professional learning. Um, Nahida Mahara Singham, who's the head teacher of a, a primary school uh, in London called Rathfern Primary, they do unbelievable work. Like I really recommend, if anybody hasn't listened to that episode, go back and listen to the episode with Nahida. She's tremendous, and 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 XP. A recent a recent um, guest was Andy yeah. Andy Sprakes, the, one of the co-founders of XP, and like you say, there are many others. I love this idea. I wonder if anything exists where there's sort of so so alongside this podcast, there's a community of, of people who has grown up. There's about five hundred people in it now, but they're just individuals. But you could have a similar um, group on on. It uses a, a social network called a Mighty Network which is basically like a special interest group. It's like a social media platform for special interest groups. But you could have something like an innovative schools network where you had schools that are all talking to one another, sharing sharing practice with one another, forming like one-to-one -one sort of informal relationships and spreading good practice. Because I agree with you that like you often, like with some of this stuff, with the Schooling Framework Commission, that has to be a policy change that needs to be seen through at the top end. But like you say, with stuff like Steps and Elect and the, the way that XP have been creative with their timetable, my own research background as a, as a teacher researcher was where we, we literally did what Derry Hannum suggests. We gave the we gave 25, 20 uh, percent of the curriculum time with the whole of year seven and then it expanded into years eight and nine 
over to a learning skills curriculum where we were doing these kinds of things, project-based learning, lots of philosophical inquiries, kids asking questions and driving their own learning. You don't have to ask for permission, do you? And it's often better, what's that phrase? It's better to ask for um, for forgiveness than for permission in the first place, right? Just like people can get on and do things. And it's not easy, like we were saying, in this, in this system of very high accountability, there are all kinds of pressures on head teachers to not stick their neck out you know, and potentially risk, you know, losing their job um, because of something that doesn't that doesn't go the way that they planned it for it to go. Um, but I, I'm liking what you're saying, and and there's there's also a lot that we can do. I think just to just to, if I could add one one or two other things is to mobilize parents and carers and young people who are currently like parents and carers have huge political clout, which is you know for every kid there's there's between one and two parents or carers. That's a huge number of people who have political clout. And at the moment, their voices are very sidelined. And there are many parents and carers who are really concerned about education and that they don't feel like it's working for their kids. And I think if we can figure out how to, how to, I think mobilize is the wrong word, but just how to hear their voices, how to have them listened to and how to just listen to what it is that they've got to say. Um, I think that that would be a huge step in the right direction. Yeah. Agree with that? Yeah, I mean that that was, it was it didn't really have a question mark on the end of that. It was just a bit of a bit of a, a tirade. Um, but I'm really liking it. I'm I'm liking what you're saying. There's lots of things that we can do already. Um, I think that there is a level of organisation. We're talking a lot about sort of bottom up change to put pressure to 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 come up with a sort of a raft of of policy proposals. Um, might be an idea. I, I mean, it, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. About lob- like, how fruitful is it to lobby political parties with with sort of ready made policies? Uh, well, we'll do it. Um, whether it works or not, I don't know. But let's not forget, we haven't mentioned it that the Times newspaper has an education commission, and people on the whole uh, listen to the Times newspaper. And if you look at their interim findings, they're going to come up with things very similar to those that are in our book. Uh, so you you don't need to think that it's going to come up with less than radical proposals. It is. And it's going to come up with them in June. And it will at least be listened to briefly. And as Mick said, and you've said, Fed have, have, have got ideas. Uh, I think that Pearson's are running a skills commission. That's people, right. people are unhappy with the existing state they don't want to get back to normal which is what people have been talking about they do want to build back better or whatever it may mean they 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 do feel that now is the time that we ought to be doing things that prepare kids for a world which is so rapidly changing i mean you know when I started out, there were millions of jobs for unskilled and semi-skilled people. Now it's it's in the small hundred thousands. Uh, you need skills, skills uh, that aren't even on the curriculum, uh, which are using, you know, some of these devices that we've been playing around with together today uh, at a competent level. And there aren't many jobs where you don't have to use the technology. So that there are changes that are being brought in by automation, robotics, artificial intelligence, etc., which is going to change the scene in terms of job opportunities. And we really ought to be examining 
what world we're 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 enabling our children to shape not be shaped by mm. we want them to have agency to feel that they can they can control that world because in a democracy we believe that everybody has the potential and the duty to contribute uh, to the collective and that's what we'd be trying to do um so i don't know i mean all i hope is that enough people of energy will who who relate to the ideas and we've found loads of people relate to all of the ideas will form themselves into groups i think mick's idea that we should be at our local mp's surgery more often is a very good point um and that will cause people to listen so we need to be doing that but i think there's a a, a tide that's turning people are fed up with a over directed over managerial uh, and over competitive system competitive between each other that because that's what we we've, we've suffered from requiring some to fail in order with it we can see that others succeed what we want is competition and improvement against our previous best so that everybody can succeed whether they contribute to the local community or to another community uh, that is essentially what our duty is yes i like it and so 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 I share, I absolutely share with you this this desire that we want to move into this into a third age of uh, what you describe as hope, ambition, and collaboration, and uh, and if I may borrow a phrase from somebody recently, which I used with my tongue only half in my cheek, that we need to build the blob back better, <laughs> because because there was so much sort of, and I mean that, that the reason it's only half in cheek is because it was so disrespectful the way that the way that Gove in particular attacked uh, certain certain quarters of the profession he wrote that there was that famous piece about marxist teachers and so on in the in the in the daily mail he was like just setting up some straw man bogeyman but he was but it, i think it did real damage that in terms of like creating a sort of a divide and conquer like mentality and it's just it just seems to me that it's been very very divisive and disruptive and unhelpful um, and and him in particular, like that, that you mentioned in the book, that lots of the people who you spoke to identify him as as having been, you know, the the architect of all of the the chaos, the the, the disassemblage of of Jenga pieces that you mentioned earlier. And if I may, do you know what I might like to finish on this? This is something that I was going to say earlier, but this is something that Gove said, and and I, I really thank you for sharing it in your book because it's it's incredible. So it says, um, it, it was when Gove was addressing the Education Select Committee. It says, I want children to be authors of their own life story. The reason I use that phrase is that I think that education is a process of emancipation or liberation. One of the problems that this country has had historically is that we've been very good at educating a minority, the gifted and talented, quite well. But the majority of children have not been educated as well as they should have been. The days have gone if they ever existed when a school could survive by having an elite who were well educated according to a particular set of narrow academic criteria and others who were simply allowed to become hewers of wood and drawers of water later on. School should be an enjoyable time. Horizons should be extended. Children should have an opportunity to encounter worlds and ways of thinking that have taken them outside their environment, whatever that is, 
so that at the end of compulsory schooling, yes, children are equipped to work well, and yes, children are able to make their own economic choices, but they feel enriched. They're able to enjoy music and literature. They're, they're scientifically literate, so they can reject bogus arguments put forward by people who are trying to seduce them into lazy ways of thinking. They can analyse what politicians and people in power say. <laughs> Sorry, I can't keep a straight face. And know what, rub what is rubbish and what is sensible. Above all, they can be happy, confident citizens and parents of the future. That is my overall vision. I mean, there's nothing wrong there, is there? Apart, apart from the fact that you know that, that, that Gove was, was saying them. I'm assuming that he didn't write that speech. I'll put that down to Sam Friedman or somebody, somebody in the, the, one of his, his advisors. And you go, you go on in the book to say his actions belied his fine words and you, and you went on there. And I don't want to end on this negative note. I wanted to share that because that seems to me to be just a beautiful summation you know, in some sense of, of what, and, and the, I imagine that there's a part of him that wants that as well. You know, you, you can't argue with those, with those fine words, but, but we need to have come up with a set of policies <laughs> that are going to lead us to that vision. Right. And, and that's what we need. We almost need to sort of work backwards from that. And that, that's actually a process that we're involved in, in the mighty network. We're meeting once a month at the moment to, to sort of backwards design an edutopia, like a version of education that looks amazing. And like, what would what would it look like when we're halfway there? What's it going to look like when we're almost there? What's it going to look like when, when we're on our way there? You know, so that we can come up with some sort of a shallow ramp of of um, of system level improvement to take us from where we are to this to this vision of the future that that I think a part of Gove seems to share and that we that we also share as well. And so I would like to end by thanking you both massively for for sharing your time and your energy and for writing this this stonking great book. It's absolutely brilliant. I really strongly recommend that people get themselves a copy if they don't have one already. Is there any is there any final request that you would make of of our listeners? If anybody feels stirred to to uh, take action and to to get involved in bringing about this vision of the future. Is there anything that you would recommend that people can do uh, or places that they can that they can get hold of you if they want to hear more about you? Uh, two, two things I'd just say, linked to the Gove... Uh, well, two things I'd just say, James. Linked to the Gove speech, now that he's Minister for Leveling Up, it would be good to send him that list that you just read out, the, the, the statement he made to the Select Committee, and say... Could we level up on that agenda, please, as opposed to this limited agenda of levelling up that he's proposing for children's schooling? Second thing I'd say just about the book generally is that all the royalties are going to two charities. So anybody who's listening to this podcast who's inclined to buy it might know that even in buying the book, they're supporting some uh, aspects of children's development that are... Uh, ri richly appreciated by the charities that receive the 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 the, the money in the end. And if, if if to add to that, James, if 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 your podcasters could see us, they'd realise not only were we not in it for the money, uh, <laughs> but we aren't we aren't in it for our careers, which are behind us rather than in front of us. Uh, though we shall continue to try to persuade people that their dreams of what the schooling system could be can be realised if they, if which they can now, which is link up with groups like yours and other groups that you can identify and get together and agree on things that they're going to do 
to change the system for the better. That's uh, that's what our sole motivation. If they want to get in touch with uh, either of us, well, certainly me, they can get in touch with Tim Brickhouse, uh, nothing in between, at yahoo.co.uk. And I'll be glad to respond to anything uh, that they want to ask. And mine is. Because I'm so old, I've got nothing else to do. They were much busier than I am. Yeah, My, mine's Mick Waters, 2000 at yahoo.co.uk. Okay. No, no L in Waters. <laughs> both both Yahoo people. Well, thank you both hugely. I really, really appreciate you sp sp spending this time with me. I've learned a huge amount from reading this book. And thank you for it from the bottom of my heart. I'm really looking forward to meeting you later this year at Northern Rocks and also at the Rethinking Education Conference. Tickets available, listeners. If you uh, haven't signed up yet, there's a 20% discount for listeners of the podcast. Um, and you can hear, you can get uh, links to that in the show notes. Thank you both hugely. I will let you get on with the rest of your days. I know that you have a busy schedule of talks and whatnot. A pleasure. Pleasure to be with you, James. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks, James. Time is a measure of change.